get it going. It's time to get up. 11 minutes to play in the half. Rush to throw for it, and it is caught. Touchdown, David Moore for Seattle. These guys are here to break it all down. Isn't it more valuable with more meaningful games, an extra playoff round, more teams in the race, more... Like, if I'm the players, that's what I'm saying here. Okay, you want this from us? What we want in return, you have to maximize the revenue. Let's have a little fun and make you a winner. Oh, that's sweet. This is the starting lineup with James Zabalski and Perry Solkowski. Hey, a pinch and a punch for the first of the month. It is Tuesday, December 1st. Oh, yes, the countdown to Christmas is officially on. All the lights are up. You got no excuses now. It's December. James Sabalski here. Perry Solkowski there. Greg Valick on the other side of the glass. We are the starting lineup here on your home of Vancouver Hockey Sportsnet 650. What's happening, man? It's go time. It sounds like you're ready to go, though. Well, listen, uh, fired up last night by watching that Seahawks game and and like any others who partake in any form of uh, guessing, which could be called gambling and very low five dollar whatever bets. What a football game. What a finish. You love how so Seattle played the first half and then the most improbable finish of all time. Our two guests were the experts in the world of betting. Todd Furman, who we have on Bet the Board podcast every Thursday morning. We talk to Todd from Las Vegas, and then Steve Rapp joins us on Friday. Funny to see both of them about two minutes after the game was over. Furman, who had suggested the plus six and a half was good, going that could be the most improbable cover ever, should be leading all sports shows in the States, like there's anything else going on. And then there's uh, Steve Rapp, a little more succinct with the, what the F was that? So I just I just enjoyed the whole process of it all. Um, yeah, so it gets you going December 1st. It's good. Went, I finished the lights. I, uh, I went to Canadian tire doing my part, feeling very Canadiana, but talking to the guy there, like there was nothing left on the shelves. It was like a boxing day, especially because this has been crazy how many lights we've got rid of and, um, tried, you know, post-op with my hernia yesterday afternoon. It was nice. out. thought, okay, I'm going to see what I can do, how far I can stretch. I wasn't a full Randy Johnson on the mound stretching out. So um, our lights aren't very high in some spots. But at the end of the day, yeah, a little walk this morning, taking the dog. The lights are up at the right time for that 10 minutes when I'm outside. All is good, man. All right. All right. So you're, you're, you're just basically, it sounds like you basically just put the lights on the ground this year. I tried that once, actually. I tried to dot the driveway with lights. Took a video of it, sent it to my daughter, said, how long do you think before mom just says not a chance? She goes, 30 seconds. So, yeah, I was about 30 seconds about three years ago. No, they're not bad. Um, but, no, I, I certainly can't reach as high. And uh, we, we got the job done, though. And yep. and the, the early reviews last night when it was dark and the timer comes on were positive. I wouldn't bet the house that at some point when Kathy's a little – uh, less busy. She'll go out there. Oh, we're just going to move a couple strings here and there. She was placating the sick guy yesterday. Mm, it was like that, right? Okay. Are, right. How do you do them? Or do you take complete control? Are your kids taking part? Is Brenda suggesting? Or do you go and everyone goes, oh, that's nice. And there's no, because anything with design in this house, I never get the final say. Uh, it's just on me when I put the, when it comes to putting the lights. I think uh, Bren might have a suggestion to something else she'd like to add. Um, I think I've had the kids on on occasion, you know, give a hand. Um, 
but sometimes it's just like, okay, today's the day I can get it done. Uh, there's a window here. It's not pouring rain. Let's go. So generally yeah. it's just take the initiative and just go to it. It's, uh, you know, I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think Brenda's fussy enough to say, oh, we need to do this, that, and the other. It's just like, you know, and she's just happy that the kids are happy that they see Christmas lights. So everybody wins. That's how, that's how we're rolling with the Christmas. Oh, much, easy, much easier in Delta than it is up in our place. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, it's Bertuzzi, everybody. So uh, Todd Bertuzzi will join us uh, on this uh, December 1st uh, in about an hour from now with his weekly chat, as he always joins us each and every Tuesday at 7 a.m. here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, we'll also catch up with uh, senior hockey writer from The Athletic in just a few minutes as well, Scott Burnside, uh, checking in with the latest. And guess what? It's all quiet right now in the NHL. More on that in a moment. Uh, the voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor will drop by on your Canucks commute at 8 o'clock, um, and a fun conversation we'll get into uh, momentarily. Uh, 650-650, the Dunbar Lumber text line at Sportsnet 650 is where you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, i tell you what, Seahawks, man, not pretty. You're all pissed off. About, I told you last night before we signed off, before we signed off yesterday morning, I said I like the under, and I do not like the Seahawks cover, and you know, you could just see that backdoor cover coming uh, the Eagles lingered all game long, man. Wasn't pretty. Like, that team's a mess. But I would say this. Like, take take the number out for a second, and if you just focus on the win as a win as a win, you know, the Seahawks suddenly in the last three weeks pair are getting it done defensively. Like, the defense mm-hmm. has come alive here. That's three straight weeks where they've allowed 23 points or less against the opposition Six sacks last night on Carson Wentz. I get that the Eagles are a bit of a mess right now. I get that. Like, they've had a lot of problems offensively this year trying to protect Carson Wentz, trying to give him playmakers to try to make things happen. But that's three straight weeks now that the defense that people have kicked in the A-double crooked letter all year long have stepped up and deserve a major hand in that victory for the Seahawks now. Well, a halftime speech from Pete Carroll must have been, other than the fact that you look at a scoreboard and go, how are we only up by, well, they were up by eight because they missed the, the PAT, did the Eagles, but he would go, okay, we ran the ball down their throat, we were getting to Carson Wentz, guys, we're doing everything, let's keep this up, we're going to blow these guys out of the water. They have finally gotten healthy defensively, Jamal Adams saying he finally feels like he can do his thing. You know, the Dunlop trade, I like that the trade deadline, he allows a little bit more pressure. That that first half, you look at that Eagles team, and I'm watching it going, you know, everything falls in line. This team could be playing for an NFC championship because you never know what you're going to get in the NFC as far as the powers are concerned. Um, but in the second half, some adjustments by Philadelphia. I never felt the game was really in doubt. I think there might have been one possession where you go, you know what, they better score here just to give them some breathing room. Um, they were in control, but they're going at the right time. And you look at their schedule, James, for the next three weeks, there is nothing daunting in front of the Seahawks. It's almost like, all right, let's just keep on rolling here. And you want to be in that great position to uh, have success where they did. You know, it's, it's one thing we'll get into it, the craziness that occurred too. But I do think it speaks to the discipline of Pete Carroll and all that. There's one football team that hasn't tested positive for COVID, and that's the guys who put on Seahawks jersey. I mean, this is the team that always believes, and they're getting better and better, and they're getting the wins all the time. Didn't like their second half, but they managed it across the line. But their first half, I thought they were spectacular. Just didn't cash in some of the times where they should have. No, but, you know, now all of a sudden you look at where their schedule sits and they take care of business against the Eagles. We've talked about this a few times over in recent weeks. You know, 
they've got an opportunity to run the table here. And you look at the month of December, their schedule, Giants next, home game again against the Jets, on the road against Washington, and then they close out December with the Rams, and then the final game of the regular season is on the road in San Francisco. Like, anything less than an 11-5 and season should be a disappointment for the Seahawks from here on in, right? And I think both the mm-hmm. Rams and the Niners are winnable games for Seattle as well. It wasn't pretty against L.A., but at the same time, they were in that game the entire time despite the fact that they had a hard time moving the ball. Like it's not inconceivable to me that they could go five and zero and somehow finish thirteen and three, but I think this is a very, very, very favorable schedule that could allow them to sneak out and finish atop the NFC and take that number one seed, which would be very favorable for them as you get into those winter months. But pair like the Giants, the Jets, Washington, like you know. I think anything less than going 3-0 and in the next three weeks will be a bit of a belly flop for the Seattle Seahawks here. I think so. And then you get into the postseason, who scares you? Uh, you know, don't know what Tom Brady's bringing. They seem to be a little bit of a mess trying to get on the same page as the head coach. Don't know how Drew Brees will be when he gets back, but right now that's a different offense in New Orleans with Taysom Hill running the show there. And Aaron Rodgers is Aaron Rodgers. So there, that may be the thing. How do you stop Aaron Rodgers? But Aaron Rodgers isn't making any tackles. It's just how do you get that off it? So where do the Seahawks have to get better? As you said, defensively, and they have gotten a little bit better defensively. It really, you know, if you look at anybody in the NFC, I think right now from a distance, you line up and go, man, I like the position that the Seahawks are in right now. I'm still, you know, I've been a Rams supporter. I think the Rams might be a bit of football team because of their defense don't tr- don't, and don't what they could do. Offense. But you know what? There's, there's, we got golf like we saw on Sunday where you go, man, I don't know about the consistency of that guy. You don't have any concerns with Russell Wilson. So, yeah, of, of all things. And it's just amazing, James, to think about where this football team was, how people waited for them to falter after the Legion of Boom was finished. And he thought, man, he's just bringing in pieces here. And Russ is keeping it together amazingly. And now Russ is starting to have more and more weapons. DK turns into the monster that he is. They get a little better. Jamal Adams' move works for them. And I, I don't know how long we're talking about football in January with the Seahawks playing, but they, I think, will be in that conversation with only a couple weeks of football left. And it's amazing what they have done with this team. All right, more on the uh, the chaos around of the National Football League coming up at the bottom of the hour. But in the meantime, uh, joining us on the line, we dive into the uh, the world of hockey. And it's all quiet, as we mentioned at the start of the show. Nothing's happening right now between the NHL and the Players Association. But let's try to get some answers from uh, NHL senior writer from The Athletic, Mr. Scott Burnside. Good friend of the show as well. Hey, Scotty, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. I wasn't sure whether I should use my inside voice or my outside voice for, you know, with the, because you're right, it's very, it's very quiet. It, what's that uh, line from the all quiet on the Western Front? It stinks so quiet. Anyway, you're right. It is very quiet. Whatever, whatever's the case, it stinks right now. You know, Scott, you you think back to when when you and I used to travel covering lockouts together. You know, in years past, you know, we would you use the company dime to go, you know, drink a whole lot of beer at pubs in New York City, waiting for these labor negotiations to wrap up in a different lifetime. Um, I don't feel like it's quite as contentious as the time between the players and the owners uh, to have that sort of disconnect where we saw seasons being canceled or having shortened seasons as a result. But, man, are we starting to get a little bit of a sense that maybe it is starting to go that way? 
Well, and I and I think you're right. And it, it, you know, it's interesting. You think you know, you know, 2012 at, at at this very time of the year, right? Like heading into the holiday season in in 2012, and the the first half more or less of the NHL season had already been, you know, swept aside by the last lockout in the NHL. And it's, we were just talking about it in the house this morning that in you know in the past we, all of these kinds of conversations were. Uh, accompanied by a lot of a lot of uh, sniping and a lot of you know laundry being aired in public and a lot of social media back and forth and people calling out the other side and a lot of anger right a lot of anger and I think to your point what we're seeing here is listen both, at least I like to think that both sides both the players and the owners understand that this is not this isn't a, 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 the kind of historic labor discussion that we've had in the past. This is not the time for, you know, calling each other's names. And we, you know, what's the number in the United States now? 270,000 um, deaths from COVID-19. Uh, every night on the news in, in the United States, we see miles-long lineups for food banks. We understand the economic devastation um, that this uh, pandemic has has created in the United States and certainly around the world and Canada, which I think you know by and large has done a nice job, but it's, you know going through spikes uh, from um, border to border. Um, this is not the time to be complaining about. Well, I want we want need, need you to defer a little bit more of your multi million dollar salary, or you know I'm a billionaire owner crying poor. Um, I, I think there is an understanding that, that that that's the kind of discussion that optically is that the league can't have now. And so you balance that against the fact that I believe, and I think a lot of people that I've talked to in the game, whether it's been owners or players, I think there is a, a sense the game has to be played. If you can play it, if the coronavirus allows you to play games, you have to play them. And that if that means... At some point, the players are going to have to defer an additional, let's call it an additional 10% on top of the 10% they've already agreed to defer. Um, I I think that will happen. And I think these things can happen very quickly. I know, you know, Pierre Lebrun was my good pal and colleague was tweeting this morning that the target still remains, you know, let's call it January 1st or early January to start. That gives you, you know, now you play, what, between 50 and 60 games, somewhere in that neighborhood. That's the target. And the clock is really ticking on that, and that's why I, I could, I like to think that by the end of this week we'll have a lot more clarity on it. But to your point, there is a different feel about this, and there should be because we're in a way different world than in in previous uh, labor disputes between the players and the NHL. Well, back in those days, Scott, when when everyone was talking about it in 05 and 13, I mean, the whole word was trust. We want to see their books. We don't believe what they're saying. I mean, it's pretty obvious it's in front of everybody right now, and I can understand why the players are unhappy going, well, we did this four months ago. But the fact is, if we would have had you on four months ago, none of us would have predicted what December would look like as we get into this month because of, of what has happened with the virus. The fact that we can't get a lot of information, and I know with the American Thanksgiving last week, we didn't expect much, but I think it's a good thing. Like, you know, that, hey, there are all the insiders but it, do you not think it's positive that they're going, listen, we can't have anything what happened with Major League Baseball. We're going to have to get really quiet on this like we did in the summertime. And no one leak anything here as we try and hammer this. Do you look at the quietness as maybe a positive? Yeah, I mean, I think there is some of that. And, and I think, 
again, there is in some ways a template in in place, right? I mean, and and there is there are discussions going on at some levels, and you know that uh, at least my sense is there have been discussions about what would training camp protocols look like. Uh, are there areas where it would be? You know, you have to because the situation is so fluid. I mean, the Santa Clara is an excellent example in California, the home, you know, both the NFL 49ers and the San Jose Sharks. I mean, what will happen uh, if they close down um, as they have or are in the process of doing all contact sports? What happens to the Sharks? I mean, those are things that the players in the league will have to work through. Um, but there is a template, right? You've been through this. You you've set up phase two in the summer for players returning and leading into a training camp and then going into the bubbles. Um, we're not going to go into bubbles this time, but we, you know, it's not like they're, they're starting from, um, you know, a complete blank slate when you're talking about well, how will this work? So I think that part of it is, uh, and the fact that there was tremendous cooperation and it was a tremendous success in terms of the the bubble situation and getting the playoffs off. So I, I don't think you're wrong that, you know, that there is, you know, that, that we should read the tea leaves and say, well, they haven't, you know, it's very quiet that that bodes ill for the start of a season. I, I, I agree. I think, I think these things can turn on a dime. Um, I also know that are, we're at such a fluid situation in terms of the, you know, I think uh, Anthony Fauci described it as a, um, you know, a, um, you know, an outbreak on top of an outbreak. It's not the right word, but that he used, but a uh, surge on top of a surge in terms of the, the coronaviruses. And who knows what happens after American Thanksgiving? You know, the next couple of weeks could be even worse than we've imagined. But we also know that the virus is going to be um, distributed and is being distributed as we speak. It's going to be made available to or the vaccine, rather, is going to be made available to frontline workers in, in literally in a matter of days if the FDA approves emergency use, uh, which is expected. So we, we have these two sort of tracks where it's it's as bleak as it's ever been, but there is also this notion, geez, are we, all, are we getting to a point now where we're going to get vaccine um, in front of people who really need them the most and then see what happens from there? So it is... You know, it's very fluid, and, the, and you know, obviously hockey is such a small, you know, cog or piece in the machinery, um, but I do think it can change very quickly, but it has to change, um, I would think, in a matter of days if we are going to see hockey on anything approaching the timeline that, that the players in the league uh, are targeting. It's kind of like being stuck in a towering inferno begging for help, and Superman has arrived on the scene, but he's just chosen to help, like, 200 other people out get out of the building before you. Like, I'm up here! Help! Come on! We're almost there! <laughs> uh, in that sort of sense, Scott, you look at how the numbers are spiking. You look at what the NFL is dealing with right now, college football. You know, the NBA is opening training camps today. And I, and I wonder, like, does that force the NHL to say, "Man, we got to get we we got to get going here"? Like, there's some pressure here to do this, or are they looking at what's happening in the NFL and saying, "You know what? Maybe slow playing this is the answer again because it worked pretty well in the summer." Yeah, I, I think there might be a little bit of both, frankly. And, and you know, the NBA is a, it's a different animal. It's TV. Revenues are completely different than the NHL, you know, and especially having gone through um, a return to play where there were no fans anywhere in NHL buildings, and we're not looking at having fans in NHL buildings um, likely to start. And in some areas, you may may not be able to get fans in your building for an entire 48 game 
season. Let's call it that. Uh, other areas, you know, it, it changes from from state to state on what might happen. But really, what we were probably talking about at best case is what twenty five percent capacity, and and we're not looking at a, a vaccine being rolled out, you know, in full to a general public probably until. Uh, late spring, early summer, best case scenario, all those kinds of things. So, um, you, you know, it, it sometimes it's like apples and oranges, but I do think big picture, when you see that all the, the leagues and, and whatever missteps there have been and baseball early on, uh, but, you know, there are plans to return to spring training coming up. Uh, we know the NFL, lots of, you know, one step up, two steps back, but continuing to move forward. NBA going back to training camp. I, I don't think there's a scenario that we're for the overall health of the league that you can just shutter your doors until next fall and say, well, let's pick it up uh, when Seattle comes in at number 32 in the league and we'll pick it up in the fall of 21 and, and hopefully things are more or less back to normal. I don't think that's an option with television deals, both national and regional. Uh, I just think it puts the, the economic impact would be so great, even though there are some NHL teams who might prefer not to play at all, given the economic landscape. I do think the health of the league is overall, it necessitates playing. And that's why I do think that we can see something happening sooner than later um, because because the pressures are big for this league to play some sort of season, um, call it 2021. It may actually, it's only going to be 21, but um, I think there is a significant amount of pressure to for the league to do, to have some sort of season um, that leads then hopefully into a return to a normal schedule in 21-22, um, Olympics, all those things. Um, but you got to take care of this business at hand first. Uh, and when they do, and when you have a three-hour talk show, Scott, we always bring up poll questions. A lot of time we're going back in history. Here's ours today. Before we let you go, we'll give you the vote. I'm sure I know where you're going with it. Uh, I'm basing it on the fact that that two-point conversion by the Eagles last night kind of killed a lot of people in sports in the betting world. So we decided who's the best duo that the Canucks have had. Our options for you, Bertuzzi, Naslin, Burry, Mogilny, the current version of Pedersen and Hughes, or Henrik and Daniel Sedin. Where would you vote with your hockey history around this team? Ooh, that's a, You know what? And that's a great question because the options are, I mean, those are tremendous options. I, I got to go with the Sedins. I, and that's, that's sort of a heart thing. And that's, um, you know, and having covered them, you know, not closely over the years, but closely enough that, um, uh, you know, not just the, not just what they did in the ice, which was um, unbelievable. But to me, it is uh, what they meant to that franchise and their leadership and their commitment to the community. So I, I have uh, no hesitation in casting my ballot for the Sedins uh, and, uh um, you know, what, I know there's no uh, right or wrong answer here, but this is the right answer, actually. So there you go. That's my vote. <laughs> All right. Well played. Uh, stay safe out there. Nice to catch up with you, sir. And uh, we will do this, I'm sure, again, hopefully when there's uh, maybe a dropping of the puck at some point. That'd be nice to just talk about hockey as opposed to escrow and concessions and finances. <laughs> here all the time. I'm all for that. Yeah, I'm all for that call. Let me call As soon as it happens, let me know. Done and done. You take care, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Okay, take care. There he is, Scott Burnside, uh, senior NHL writer for The Athletic, uh, weighing in with his thoughts on the NHL's return to play. Uh, 23 minutes after 6 o'clock. Let's get into this a little bit more. uh, Dynamic duos in Canucks history. We'll get into that. Plus, the misery of being a Chicago Bears fan. That's all still ahead here on your home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.
This is the starting lineup with James Sabolski and Perry Solkowski on Sportsnet 650. All right, 629 here on this Tuesday morning on this December the 1st. Uh, we're going to see some more sun today in the forecast. A high of 9 degrees with a mix of sun and cloud and then really kind of getting sunny around lunchtime. James Sabalski, Perry Solkowski hanging out with you. We'll get to see ball sets in just a couple minutes. But we're asking you this morning, as uh, we had talked about with uh, Scott Burnside, Pear, uh, the greatest Canucks dynamic duo in franchise history. Is it Bertuzzi Naslin? Bure McGilney, Pedersen Hughes, or the Wonder Twins? Right now, this is a, a very one-sided poll with uh, 71% leaning towards Henrik and Daniel Sedin with uh, Burton Nazi a distant second. And uh, Pedersen Hughes getting some love at 11%, and then Bure McGilney. Uh, the names sound wonderful, but... It's hard to even consider them in this conversation based on it just never clicked when they were together. No, and and you know what? For the most part, they're both of their respective best years were when when one of them was hurt. Yeah. Right? They never actually had all, all of it going. It's I know as as Scott said, the easy and the default here is the Sedines. But if you look at what was um, you know a, a launching pad to success. For the last two decades, if you actually total up, if we were to ask this questions of these, you know, of these duos, which duo had the most productive year? It's Burton Nazi. Burton Nazi combined put together over 200 points one season. The Sedins never did that. Um, and here's the other thing where, you know, Bert's on, obviously, Todd Bertuzzi joins us every Tuesday. If you look, and I was going through some of the attendance records of the Canucks. The biggest jump that this hockey organization ever had in season ticket sales, next to the obvious, which was, okay, we're moving from the Pacific Coliseum to this brand new shining building that's called GM Place. Obviously, you're going to have a big hit for that, to push a new building. People are buying tickets. But after that, the single biggest jump, 3,000 season tickets, was when Bert and Nazi were in their heyday, when Berkey was pounding the doors and going on the community. And people bought in to the Vancouver Canucks, the product that they were putting on the ice, how competitive and entertaining they were. So honestly, there's there's something to be said. I know they're at 14 15% if we round it up. But Burton Nazi as a duo for one season might have been as impactful as anybody who wore the Canuck uniform. Well, and you think back right before the West Coast Express era really ignited. Man, like that upper bowl pair was empty. Right, I mean, there were thousands and thousands of empty seats, and we we kind of saw the cracks in in, in the Canucks armor um, in the last five years, where you know this franchise had become a model franchise, you know, around the National Hockey League, pretty much since the turn of the century, you know, going back since uh, 2000, and you know, and the party really kind of kicking off. Drukin scores the goal, puts them in the playoffs, ending the five-year drought, and and Nazi and Burt, I mean. They put up some pretty sick numbers. I mean, you, you look at what they did together as a, a as a one-two punch here in Canucks history. Like, there's a lot in terms of the impact that they had culturally. They made it lovable to be a Canucks fan again, right? I don't think you can I don't think you can discount that. And and we'll talk to Bert about this coming up at seven o'clock here on for Tuesday here on Sportsnet 650. But I think of like the impact. Like, I think that's an excellent point you make 
in terms of what they did psychologically for this franchise again to to make people fall in love with this team and there's a whole generation of Canucks fans that you know right in that sweet spot that 25 to 40 that go man those were my guys that was my team that was my Canucks era um the numbers are there but I, I just you know the, it just wasn't sustainable pair like they just they did not have success in the playoffs it's it's hard to go against what the twins did right I mean, the numbers are there, the fact that they stayed here. And I think the other thing that counts for the Sedins, seven playoff rounds that they won. Like seven playoff yeah. rounds that they won in their time as Vancouver Canucks. Well, Burton as were the launching pad, and the Sedins have talked about it, how much of a help they were, that little crossover, to say this is how we're doing it. Because, you know, we talked prior to the show. You know, we were going, wow, who do we put from 82 on? Well, guess what? At 82, that was a, you know, that wasn't a probable run. That hockey team in 82, that was still the time when the Oilers were running rush out over everybody. It just fell in place. L.A. knocks them out, and all of a sudden you get great goaltending by King Richard Brodeur, and you're on a run, and you're in a Stanley Cup final. So we celebrate Stan Smith, Gradeen, and we celebrate that 82 team. And you go to 94, and everyone talks about the incredible 94 series, and that playoff run was epic, and that Game 7 I'll put up against any Game 7 but you go to 94 and you actually go, that hockey team wasn't great. That that team in 1994 that went to a Stanley Cup final and but for a goalpost could have been the champs, they were a game over 500. So it wasn't like they had this magical winning way. Then they brought in all the names to see if they could get it elevated to a new level. They didn't. And then that, you know, that tier that they wanted to get to, the upper echelon of NHL play, didn't happen until you know, Nazi and Burke got them to that level in, in the early 2000s and said, this is how good we can be. And then to the Sedins getting them there and they were able to run with it for the better part of a decade, which to me, why a lot of people would go, the Sedins are the best, but it was kind of getting them to, Hey, we've moved to this neighborhood. Now, this is the expectation that we have on the organization. And the twins were able to carry that essentially right up to 2014, I would say, although they got in the playoffs in 15. But there is an argument to be made for who launched it off, who showed the way. Now, the Sedins, I think, will should be credited for what we're seeing now. That Horvat will always say how we learned from them. This is what they told us, and they're being a part of that, too. But I, I don't think it's as easy as everybody goes, Sedins, Sedins, Sedins. Nah. No, it took a while for them to get there. And the neighborhood that they played in was because of the two people before them. You said something, just to go off track for a second, that 94 team. I, I think sometimes people – it's funny how we look at the way that 94 team is revered now a quarter of a century later, right? And you're right. Like, I, I think sometimes, you know, they were kind of these – they were all, they're perceived as overachievers. But the standings might say that were, were they underachievers? Because if you if you compare rosters now – like that's probably a deeper group of forwards up front on that 94 team comparatively to the 2011 right if you if you have to pick Luongo or McLean yeah. I think I think you go you go Luongo I mean McLean was outstanding in that two month run but look up front like if you have the first pick in a in an all-time draft where you're picking with players between 94 for the 94 team and the 2011 team most people are probably taking Beret number 1 fair Yep. So, so I did it. I did yeah, it last week. Sure. And so, so if you've got if you've got the option of 
Okay, so now you've thrown Burry on that side. You can say, okay, well, Daniel and Henrik on this side. But, you know, your one-two punches, you, you look at, you've got you know, you've got Linden in his prime years who was scoring 30 a year for the Canucks at that time in 94. But look at the scoring depth. Jeff Portnell, Greg Adams, Cliff Ronning. I mean, it's, you know, you add Martin Jelenaud as a bottom six guy. Like, the list goes on and on with that team up front. And, you know, and you go, okay, like, Sergio Mamesa. Like, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of grit. There was a lot of size. There was a lot of toughness. There was a ton of scoring on that team up front where – you know, you look at that 2011 team. Yeah, there was there was some size, there was some toughness, there was some depth. But I don't know. I would I would argue up front, you could make a case that the '94 team had a better group of forwards than the 2011 squad. But yet, you know, we kind of look at this team, and and you know, 2011 left this market disappointed. And maybe it's how Game Seven played out. But I would also say that, you know, the '94 team. You know, man, it's like, oh, man, you guys are right there and everybody loved them and loves them to this day where, you know, I think we're just kind of thawing in the last couple of years the appreciation of what 2011 was because it stung and it stung for years, man. There's still people who have a hard time talking about it to this day. Well, and I think part of it is that 94 team squeezed everything out of them, right? Like they 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 punched above their weight for a little bit. They got on that roll. And like you say, you look at that roster and you go, man, those guys left everything out there. And I'm not going to say that the 2011 team didn't. I wouldn't do that to pro athletes. I don't think anybody looks back and goes, oh, I could have tried a little harder. But that 94 team and who they lost to, and you look at what they had built and who were the Stanley Cup champions, and then you look at that Boston Bruins roster as compared to the Vancouver Canucks, and you go, really? You lost to them? Like, what, what happened, right? Uh, that's why I think there was a bigger disappointment around 2011 for sure. And I do think that 94 team, as it should be, you get to a Stanley Cup final. But what do you remember? You don't remember the regular season. You remember the postseason. So take that to what we're getting set for whenever it happens in six, eight weeks, whenever these guys get back on the ice. What are we remembering? We're not remembering this Canucks team last year where they were floundering sometimes and we were going, oh, my goodness, are they making the postseason? Like they are going the wrong way. Now Markstrom's hurt. Now Demko can't handle the heat. Okay, he's better now, but these guys still might not make the playoffs. No, we remember him for a bubble session in Edmonton and going, holy smokes, they beat the Stanley Cup champs. Boy, they almost knocked off Vegas. So you remember for what you were, and, and that brings you back to Chris Higgins going, okay, well, we got to make sure we prove to people we're not a fraud. So as excited as we are for the season, you remember your last image, but what was the team in 94, the one that lost in Game 7, or do you base it on the – the 80 games they played where they were one game over 500. So, you know, what have you done for me lately? That is what sports is all about. Let's get into today's edition of Seaball Says. You know, I was like to take this opportunity to talk about myself. Seaball Says on Sportsnet 650. We better wake our tails up. Every freaking coach on the, on the staff, every player, better wake up and start start understanding where we're at. Have some personal pride. Have a freaking sense, sense of urgency. Know where we're at. Have some pride into who we're playing uh-huh. for and why we do this. Oh, there's Matt Nagy, the head coach, the beleaguered head coach of the Chicago Bears, essentially pleading for his job, I think, to his staff and colleagues and players. And I'm going to speak from the heart this morning as a longtime Bears fan, a team that I fell in love with during the Super Bowl shuffle heyday. I didn't come here looking for a trouble. I just came to do the Super Bowl shuffle. 
See, I was about 10 at the time, watching the Bears with all that personality and dominance, making it easy for a kid to gravitate to. Ditka, Buddy, Sweetness, Mongo, Fridge, Singletary, and their cocky quarterback, Jim McMahon, whose messages on his headbands only added to his persona. McMahon was good, not great. But that's all Chicago needed from him to win a Super Bowl 35 years ago. And that pretty much sums up the Bears' Achilles heel over the course of their history, the quarterback position. Go Bears. Mike Tomzak, Jim Harbaugh, Eric Kramer, Kate McNown, Slash, Cordell Stewart, Rick Meyer, Dave Craig, Kyle Orton, Rex Grossman, and Jay Cutler have all been given the keys to the Bears' kingdom over the last four decades. None of them memorable. A colleague took to Twitter Sunday night during the Bears' latest spanking at the hands of Green Bay and posted a picture of Smokin' Jay saying, I thought this was rock bottom. Funny thing is, Cutler actually ranks first in most Bears' historical passing records. Think about that for a second. A long-running joke around the National Football League is arguably the greatest quarterback in Chicago Bears' history. Cutler lost the football, and the Eagles have it. That brings me to today. Mitchell Trubisky has been a total failure as a franchise quarterback. They brought in the so-called offensive wizard in Matt Nagy, and that still hasn't clicked, and people have called for Nagy's head, which is fair. Nagy's desperate plea to his organization yesterday sounded more like a cry for help than a rallying of the team. And people have suggested that the Bears should have punted on Trubisky last winter. But the hate is all being pointed in the wrong direction. See, the problem is Ryan Pace, the Bears GM, set the franchise back years by misreading the tea leaves, not only by taking Trubisky second overall in 2017, but also trading up to get him. Opting to pass on pro bowler Deshaun Watson, and the current face of the NFL, and quite possibly the man who could potentially make a run at taking over the slot as the best ever at that position, some guy named Pat Mahomes. Look at the magic of the quarterback. Just Mahomes moving around, dancing, and then throws it like almost no luck. Trubisky will be the answer to a head-scratching trivia question years from now, but the decision will be one that should be ridiculed as well. Think of where the Bears could be with that defense and a pivot like Mahomes. You could only wonder because Ryan Pace has crippled the Bears for years because of this miss. What the hell were you thinking? Chicago needs to punt and punt Pace right next to where Matt Patricia is right now. And that's this morning's Seaball Says Bear. Well, quarterback makes a difference, doesn't he? Oh, thank you for thank you for mentioning Jim McMahon's because as you went in your Seabell says, not that I wasn't listening, I went to the McMahon headbands. I forgot about the Roselle headband, the Pluto <laughs> headband. Uh, he was a character. They were the dominant team, uh, and you know what? They weren't incredible on offense. They were great defensively. And yeah, I feel for you. You're not alone, though, boy. Even if you're an Eagles fan yesterday, watching Carson Wentz going really. That's what we're that's what we're hitching our wagon to. You had other options, man. When teams are poor in the NFL, James, they make mistakes. Your team's been making mistakes for about twenty years now. Oh, it goes back even longer than that. And then you watch yourself losing two games every year to a Green Bay team that went fifteen years of Brett Favre, and then the last fifteen years with Aaron Rodgers. Some things don't feel fair, pair. Don't feel fair at all. G-
GMs make a difference. That's why Seattle's been so good. Right guy, right time. A lot of people didn't like DK Metcalf. Hmm. Nice pick. <laughs> Yeah, how'd that work out? 644, Todd Bertuzzi joins us at 7 o'clock. And in a moment, no BS, just PS next, right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It's all PS, no BS, right here on the starting lineup. Facts and figures you need to know on this Tuesday morning at 650 on 6.50 right now. How's that for timing? P.S. everybody, you may not know who Jeff Carlson is, but you know who Jeff Carlson is. He's so popular along with his brothers. They go around giving familiar speeches, pregame talks, if you will, like this one that they gave a few years ago to the Pittsburgh Penguins. This is our rink. Our town. Our fans out there. And those punks from Tampa, call us me. Call us me. But we can't put up with it, boys. No, no. About that, yeah. Aren't we? yeah. Today we're gonna go out there and play old time hockey like Eddie Short, and Clapper, and Joe Blaine, and Gordy Howe, Gordy. So we're out there tonight. Put a stick yeah. out. Let them know you're there. Get over there, side. Let you them know you're there. there. Bleed all over them. Let them know you're there. All right, boys. Our line starts. Yes, Carlson, uh, one of the Hanson brothers, and he's facing some serious medical issues. So much so, his son. Uh, started a GoFundMe, former NFL referee Paul Stewart, making everyone aware of it on his social media yesterday. Was hoping to raise $10,000, so I've already raised $13,000. So many people giving and sending pictures of them wearing the Chiefs jerseys. So he's had an issue with, with eating and his throat, but the son saying yesterday that they're making some progress. Man, the Hanson brothers, anybody in hockey, as soon as they say Hanson brothers, James, you know who they are. <laughs> I played a game, um, there was a team of media members when I was just breaking into the business in Ottawa against uh, a, a Senators alumni team that featured the Hanson brothers who were in town for a promotional event. My first shift as the game started, you know, it's against the Hansons and a loose puck goes into the corner. Pair, I'm getting to the puck, I'm on my way there and all I see, you know, and the guys are in their full gear, the glasses, no helmet, and they're just flying, and it's Dave Hansen, and I just, oh my god, flashback right to the movie, terrified, like, close my eyes into the corner, like, oh my god, he's gonna kill me, right? All I'm thinking is the movie, my, yeah. the elbow's going up, my chicklets are going everywhere, and it just terrified the poop emoji out of me, and at the last possible second, I realized that you know, he's just as concerned about getting hurt and hit in the corner as I am. So we just kind of grazed off each other and off we went. But <laughs> there was a fleeting second for about three seconds. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me here. Yeah, uh, you know, I iconic. And the, the look, how many people went as a handsome brothers for Halloween and continue to this day. Hey, P.S. Liverpool back on the pitch today. Champions League game. When you're good, you play a lot. And the networks say, we want to see your team play. Jurgen Klopp a little tired of being viewed. He thinks he's being manipulated because Liverpool playing all the time. And it's always on short turnaround time. And he's not happy. He's I don't know how often I have to say it. You picked the 1230. Game. You. Not hey. you personally, but you did it. Did you? No, us on 12.30. So between now and December and the new year, there's one one more Wednesday and then 
Yeah, Saturday but when you say so. you picked the 12.30, the Premier League us on chose that slot. There's a reason that slot is there. I told it's you, I said it now a couple of times, these are difficult times. These are difficult Indeed, times. I think they're difficult times. The stadium's empty, of course it's yeah. difficult times. And the broadcasters are supporting we have the to, game. And we, we have to... Tr- yeah. They are. But if you, if you play at 3 o'clock or, or 5.30, it's exactly the no, same. No, it's on Saturday. That has different ramifications. You should be going to the... Your chief executive should be with the other chief executives having that discussion. We can't, If you come down here and just to have a go at the broadcaster, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not going to change anything. I'm not going to go on the broadcast. I just say how it is. Sounds like they're at a pub having a beer. That's his post-game interview. Not happy at all. And he makes a fair point, but that's how it is, Jurgen. You're a team like Liverpool, you want to play. James, we'll keep on going. P.S. The fight was a draw Saturday, but Snoop Dogg was a winner on the mic, and his call on Nate Robinson when he got hurt was spectacular. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord. Snoop, talk about dropping it like it's Lord. Christ, baby. Oh, Holy God, up. Lead me Let me stand. Wow. Nothing funny about what's happening with Nate Robinson, but Snoop Dogg is is singing the hymns. He's trying to get his hands Talk is he'd love a deal. Three-year deal, $15 for the dog to commentate on sports. James, he was good. He was different. He was entertaining. He was excellent. (laughs) He was a lot of fun. I experienced two days of it uh, a year and a half ago, and uh, he's he's. He's got a person, and honestly, like that's who he is. Like you just kind of let him go. I mean, incredibly quick-witted and playful, and, uh, and and I think sports fans saw that in full effect. And we saw that man, like in hockey broadcasts as well with the LA Kings game. Remember the fight broke out? Um, yeah, no, I mean he's he's a personality and just always seems to add a little sizzle. And people are always left wanting more after he seems to perform these days. And, and think about well, it, man. It's almost 30 years in the spotlight, and he still like, he still leaves an impact with people. Well, he, here's, you know, you're supposed to conform. Don't talk when the other guy's talking. He just starts singing. Nice job. Of the, was that Mauro Rosales who was calling it with him? Uh, that, was, was, uh, that was Mauro, that, yeah. That's what it sounded like, Mauro, too. Mauro Ranella, But yeah. did a great job. Yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, Mauro Rosales who wrote the Whitecaps. Yeah, I mean, it, that had that WWE call to it, but Snoop's doing his thing. Hey, it was entertaining. You never know if he sticks around. Why wouldn't you if you're an executive? Go, Snoop, you want to do this fight too? And bring him in. No BS, just PS, everybody. 656, I've Damon Allen the Cloxy Ball. We'll get it back. <laughs> we'll, we'll get it back on track. Todd Bertuzzi ahead on this Tuesday morning on the starting lineup. Let's get it going. It's time to get up. 11 minutes to play in the half. Rush to throw for it, and it is caught. Touchdown. David Moore for Seattle. These guys are here to break it all down. Isn't it more valuable with more meaningful games, an extra playoff round, more teams in the race, more... Like, if I'm the players, that's what I'm saying here. Okay, you want this from us? What we want in return... You have to maximize the revenue. Let's have a little fun and make you a winner. No, that's sweet. This is the starting lineup with James Zabolski and Perry Solkowski. 7.03 here on this Tuesday, December 1st. What's going on, everybody? James Zabolski, Perry Solkowski, Todd Bertuzzi will join us here in just a moment. A reminder that this hour is a presentation of Dunbar Lumber. The smart alternative is a Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner, Arbuter Street in Vancouver. Or check them out online at DunbarLumber.com. Um, 
Dynamic duos we're talking this morning, pair. We continue to wait for the NHL to to get the conversation going again with the players. I mean, I guess they say they're still talking, but it's been very quiet, and I think there's a hope from a lot of people that we'll get some clarity this week. Well, you're, you're running out of time. Uh, you know, reading some stuff when you go back to the last lockout and when the shortened season they had in, in 2012, it, it took about a, a two-week span from deals done, games are being played. Nothing in our world is happening in two weeks' time. Maybe you're saying, hey, we got it done, and then you're going to fly people in from all over the place. And and we've heard reports from different NHL cities that a lot of the guys are there in their respective cities, just, I mean, being proactive. But, yeah, I, I was never buying the January 1st deadline, and it was Gary Bettman who was the one putting it out there. But I think as this week goes by, you're not going to see that January 1st deadline. You know, middle of January is okay. They have an option to to come up and play February 1st if they have to. Um, I, I don't think we've seen James, you know, in the last week, you know, since there were reports prior to Thanksgiving of, Hey, they're, they're angry on the player side. Yeah. You're going to have to calm down, but I don't think anyone and Elliot was talking on her sister station, 960. It, it doesn't think like anybody thinks this is going off the rails. You fear it's possible. But I do think both sides realize, especially with the NBA training camp starting and they're going to get it going, the NFL going, that you can ill afford to disappear at this time and not play games. It's just a matter of when. But I would say we're, we're at, by the end of the week, January 1st is going to be to the wayside and gone. And then you look at the middle of the month when they can get this done or maybe it goes all the way to February 1st. Well, when they when they signed a deal back at the end of the last lockout in in 2012-2013, they basically needed about 14 days from the time things got, you know, done and are back on the ice with a training camp. I feel like basically with the backdrop of a pandemic, we might need a little more than just 14 days. But let's bring in Todd Bertuzzi, who's who's been there, done that with some lockouts on the time. And uh, Bert, how was Thanksgiving? Uh, I guess were you were you nice to see uh, a, a turkey like Matt Patricia finally punted into uh, the Detroit River after all this time? <laughs> Good morning, guys. Uh, you know what? You never want to see anyone lose their jobs and all kind that of, kind of stuff. Kind of, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, no, not really. <laughs> he, he really don't. He, he was he rubbed people the wrong way a little bit here, I guess, with a little bit of arrogance and all that. But what coach doesn't have that? Um, but hopefully, it's a fresh start. It's been a long, long, long time coming. Um, I think this is going to have to be a crucial uh, GM pickup and a coach pickup in order to uh, to save faces uh, uh, in the NFL and the community with the fan base. Uh, and we're hoping that this is a sign to come for all teams in Michigan because all teams in Michigan, uh, sports-wise and college-wise, are not doing very well right now. It's pretty depressing. And then you add in this beautiful storm we just received it's been a couple offer cuts, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah, Bert, not to be specific with Matt Patricia, but you know, we were talking yesterday. The number of players slash assistant coaches that have left the Patriots and Belichick and all that winning way, the Patriot way, and gone on to have success, it is minuscule. Like it just hasn't worked. Why is that? In pro sports, I'm sure you have played for coaches where it came from being a Scotty Bowman tree or a Babcock tree, somebody. Is it 
is it not necessarily about what they do, but more the person? I mean, can you take those winning ways and all of a sudden go, oh, I'm going to be a great coach. We're going to do the exact same thing. Uh, I don't see that ever happening. I think you have to be yourself. You got to bring in your own uh, passion, your own ideas. It's one thing to grab a few things, but in order to come to a team, like, there's a big difference between the Patriots roster and the Lions roster. So mm-hmm. for someone to think that he's just going to come in and get the same results that they did for the Patriots is uh, pretty stupid in my opinion. I think as an assistant coach to become a coach from a coach who's, who's, who's had success, you have to go in there with your own ideas and your own thoughts. You can, all, you can obviously take a, a few things here and there, but I think if you come in and try to be the person that you left, I don't know if everyone has that kind of respect. Uh, player-wise, have that respect for you if you come in and you start, if that's not in your nature to be a uh, argumentative, a hard A, uh, a, hard a. Um, you, you generally – Guys can read that pretty quick and pick up on that and uh, can brush that off pretty quick. So I've always liked assistant coaches come in and and and, and been like themselves, uh, acted like themselves, didn't change, didn't try to be the tough guy, came in and just tried uh, to, uh, to introduce their new philosophies, their new style of play and all that. And I always found that those guys got the most respect and, and it worked out best that way. You know, you've um, you've always talked about your love-hate or your hate-hate relationship with coaches over the course of your professional career. Who was who was the one coach that you were like when you were coming into a scenario or they were introducing themselves? You were like, man, I, I really like what this guy's saying. And then you know, get down to business, and you're like, oh my god, this guy was selling snake oil. Was there a coach that kind of stood out for you that? totally had you fooled for a moment and then you went oh no 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 this is not good yeah well i'll say my situation in florida uh i was quite excited to start a new chapter and go there uh it was Jacques Martin, right uh, well yeah it was mike keenan at the start uh that's why i was excited and, and we had a very good roster put together and uh as it was starting to begin uh something happened where Mike Keenan got fired from GM coach and Jacques Martin suddenly snuck in there and became GM coach. And at the start, I was like, okay, I am Mike's guy, whatever, but uh, I've had a good training camp. I've come in. I've got playing with some good players. I've got some good chemistry going on off to a good start. And, uh, as as it was going on, after one conversation I had with him, I knew I was like, "Oh boy, this could be trouble. This could be going. I could be out of here in two seconds. Uh, it's just not going to work." The person, for some reason, didn't didn't see what everyone else was seeing and had his own agenda and his own goals and and wanted to do it his own way. And he sunk that ship pretty quick. Uh, obviously, I only played seven games. I went out with two back surgeries. Joe Neuendijk, I uh, went out with a back surgery, never played again. Uh, but we had we had talent. We had Ole Jokinen. We had Chris Gratton. We, we had some players, and uh, very quickly uh, that team sunk into the abyss. 
and I believe uh, that gentleman had a lot to do with it. Well, I mean, you're not going to be able to remember verbatim, but so I would imagine you go into that conversation going, I'll have a better idea of what Jacques Martin wants. And you said after one conversation, you knew this wasn't going to work. What was that conversation like? What was the tone that had you leaving so pessimistic that this is not going to be a fit? Uh, you traded Roberto Luongo for me, and you're playing me 11 minutes. I don't know if you've looked in the past, but I, I played a lot of minutes, and I've been very successful uh, individually. And your team has never been in the playoffs. I've been in the playoffs and I was hoping that he was on the exact same page. I came to the training camp, did everything that they asked, uh, marketing-wise, sale-wise, uh, training-wise. They had a great trainer in Andy O'Brien there that everyone bought into, and we really did have a very deep, solid team that could have done some uh, damage, but he was, uh, he was it, just, it just didn't. You can tell right from the first conversation. And I knew right away I went home and I was like, man, I wish we wouldn't have bought this house. This could be a very quick stay. And it ended up being a very quick stay. And I ended up getting traded to uh, Detroit that year after being out for six months with the uh, back surgeries and then uh, moved on from there. You know, Todd Bertuzzi here on uh, on this Tuesday edition of Sportsnet 650 starting lineup and in Brian Burke's book right now, man, there's a lot of stories he refers to Mike Milbury as this fun-loving guy and, man, great personality, and they get along. Like, you're a Berkey guy. Berkey's a Burt guy. But I feel like all the love that Berkey gives for Mike Milbury, I feel like you don't see eye-to-eye with Berkey when it comes to Mike Milbury. Is that fair? Well, they they got a Boston connection. They're They're – their blood and their beers run way before mine. <laughs> and I have nothing but respect for I love Berkey. Berkey's like a dad to me. Uh, I can call him. We talk all the time. We text all the time. He's been that guy uh, from the get-go. I, I haven't had him and Kenny Holland very similar uh, as far as uh, relationships with those two. Um, but it's it's almost I don't know Mike Mike ended up getting I ended up getting the best out of it because of uh, my dislike for Mike I'm pretty sure I could sit down and have beers with him and and everything is going to be all right but it, it it was something that you know what and and I don't really spill the beans what happens in the room stays in the room it was just a very complex uh, eye opening treated relationship uh, towards me there and. Uh, uh, it, it, it sat with me for a very long time. I just never thought that, uh, you should be ever be treated this way. And that's my own feeling. I'm not, I'm not, I would never come out and other than say that I, I have, uh, dislike for him at that point in time, things pass and, and you forget and forgive and then you move on. I don't hold any ill will or grudge. I'm just saying at that point in time, at that age that I was at and where I was at in my career, I thought he was an absolute supersized douche, and that's not how you you treat people or you act in the NHL. And I said my my opening to being into the NHL was was like no other. I couldn't believe at some points in time this was the NHL. Like, 
I'll tell, just tell a quick story. I remember one time he took away our pregame meal. And some of you might think that's like, stop being a baby and all that. Pregame meals been around the sport for a bazillion years. And so instead of going on the road and you have a pregame meal together as a team, he took that away from us. And we were forced to go find restaurants after morning skates to go and try and get a quick bite in and then hurry up, get a quick nap and play the game because we were flying commercial back then. And I don't want anyone saying, oh, wham, wham, me, whatever. But that was the eye-opening that I had to the NHL. And I couldn't believe that (laughs) it was actually the NHL, the greatest league in the world that I was playing in when I was there for the two and a half years. Well, it must have been an eye-opener, Bert, because I can remember talking to Trevor when he went the other way back to me because, you know, like you get to the island that are going, okay, you, like you, you're allowed a couple of sticks here. Like he's going, are you kidding me? Like they're no, counting I mean, stuff have, like Trevor, that. Hey, you must have had the yeah, reverse Trevor. coming to Vancouver going, oh, my God, this is how you treat us? I didn't realize this. I was, I was a kid in a candy store. We had Patty O'Neill, the great Pat O'Neill and Grangey and Bernstein and, and, and the group. And these guys were like angels. I couldn't believe that you can get – the equipment that you need without begging or, or there's so many stories I can tell you, but it's, it's just, it's vaulted stories for me. It was, it was an experience and I'm sure Trevor, even to this day, you can tell him going from Vancouver and how they're treated to the Islanders and, and how it was. And I'm so glad that it's changed because I'll tell you right now, living in Long Island and being an Islander, it had so much history to it when I first showed up. I loved living on the island. I think it's a beautiful place. Uh, the, the beaches, uh, just obviously the rink wasn't the greatest put together rink, but it had so much history and I love history and, and all the great Islanders were around and I'm still very good friends with Eric Nystrom. I looked up to his father, Bobby. He was a hero of mine. And uh, it was unfortunate that that's how, they ran that organization that the the time that I was there and and for a while there it just it was not the NHL. Bert, uh, we're asking this morning. Uh, we were talking about it in the six o'clock hour. We've been asking this morning, uh, listeners, uh, who their favorite dynamic duo, who the best dynamic duo is uh, in Canucks mm-hmm. history. Um, I mean, obviously, Daniel and Hank have the numbers. You spent time with them playing, but do you think you can make a solid case with you and Nassie and what, what you guys did with the franchise, not just not just on the ice, but I think the impact that you guys had at the box office as well? I would say... Um, Don't be humble here for a second. Be, be, be no, honest. I'm, 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 no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being humble. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I think box office hit, it was me and Nazi. I think most exciting, it was me and Nazi. I think the best producing and the best achieving was Daniel and Hendrick by a landslide. But I think for your box office hit, um, your kind of hockey globetrotting rock stars that entertain each and every single night, I would have to put myself and Marcus at the top. I know Elmo and Bure, Pav and uh, McGilney were on the roster together. I don't, I don't think that they had as much together success. Uh, Pavel was without doubt one of the most electrifying, amazing 
hockey players I've ever seen in my lifetime. I never I I was so excited that I got to play on a roster with him, McGillney and Messi at some point in my my career. I look back on that and shake my head and say, Wow man, like these guys were literally nineties legends. Uh, that I got to play with them and Pavel was just dynamic. But if you're going duels and all that, without doubt the top uh successful one is Daniel Hendrick, but box office hit most exciting. I think hands down me and Marcus and obviously well, Morrison was a huge contributor in that. You're uh, you're not spewing fake news because if you go back in the attendance of the Vancouver Canucks, um, the biggest jump they ever had in season tickets was obviously when they moved from the Pacific Coliseum to GM Place. But mm-hmm. the next biggest jump, which you can only attribute to people buying into the product, was almost 3,000 new season tickets sold when you and Nazi were doing your thing. And there's only been two Vancouver Canucks combined as a duo to collect over 200 points in a year. And that is you and Nazi again when you guys were lighting it up in, I think, 2003. I, I, I suggested this. I mean, we look at the 94 team, which was great, but they were only a game over 500, and they had that magical run to the Stanley Cup. And then they, mm-hmm. they added parts, but they kind of teetered around. To me, I think you and Nazi, and, and you guys would probably give credit to Messier teaching you stuff, you kind of launched this organization into this is where you guys belong. All right, you should be a top franchise, and then Daniel and Hendrick were there for a little bit with you guys, and then they carried it all the way essentially mm-hmm. to 2012. Do you think that's fair that you and Nazi catapulted and said this is where the organization belongs? Everyone in the NHL should respect us, and then the Sedins carried through. Well, uh, I, I think me and Marcus were a huge contributor to that. There was a lot of huge popular. Uh, players that were involved in that with the Joe Vanowski's, Matias Owen, Brendan Morrison's, um, Dan Cloutier. There was a lot of guys that put their name uh, in that place that belong in the same part as I, I believe that that unit and the excitement of our line contributing to all right, in the West, we're now, we're, we're the team you can't mess with. We're going to collectively be in the 90 points, teetering the 100 points. We're going to solidify this organization as a stellar organization that's here for a long time. It's not going to be this roller coaster, one good year, bad year. And then the Sedins took it and ran with that with another, another group of popular players in Kessler, Burroughs, uh, Longo, but I, 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 I do look back on it and I, I do take a lot of, uh, pride in the fact that, uh, my arrival along with Naslin's and then those pieces that I told you in the two thousands did contribute to putting Vancouver, not only on the map, as far as being a top team, but a very well loved hate team, uh, throughout the NHL. Nice to catch up, sir. Um, nice to go down memory. I rate. got one more thing to say. Jacques Martin's mm. heard enough. No, I got one more thing to say. <laughs> I really hope that Jake Paul, that knucklehead that I actually watched the other day, accept Evander Kane's proposal for a fight in 2021. And Evander Kane, if you're listening, I think you're from Vancouver. I don't know you at all. I'd be in your corner in two seconds along with pretty much every other NHL player to do justice to this Jake Paul, this clown. So 
What do you hopefully... got against him, man? He beat him fair and square. I didn't say I had a problem with him. I just don't like his face. He's got a punch me face. And Evander Kane called him out, <laughs> rightfully so. And he's got the backing of every other NHL player who will be in attendance to watch that fight. So Maybe not I him. hope he accepts his Instagram invite for a fight in 2021. And again, Evander, I'll be in your corner in two seconds. That's all i got to say. Uh, you know, would you well, take who's... part in celebrity boxing? Oh, I would love to fight him too. Yeah, but what if you were you... fighting somebody else? Like, what if they said, hey, man, we're looking for ex-athletes to box against YouTubers, chefs, or whatever. Would you I, want to take I, I, I don't know. That, well, i got to see the face. You, you have a punch-me face or you don't. So I don't know what the proposal is. you got to see who they put in front of you. There's some people that you just can't. I don't know. Just, I don't care to fight, but this guy has one of those faces that everyone wants to fight. There's a reason why he was a pay-per-view draft. Because he has that face that everyone wants to fight. And I just love that Evander Kane, I think Robin Leonard came out, said that he'd mess him up. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, one of the hockey players gets uh, gets the call. Well, what, Ryan Reeves or Evander Kane, whose corner would you be in then? I'd be in both. You can't. Once a boy, always no. a boy. I can no. be in all. Oh, no. They're going to fight each other. Well, can't sit on that, the that fence now. Make, that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. We've been fighting our whole lives. We fight for a living. That's our sport. That's why everyone loves our sport, that you're allowed to be combative. You're allowed to fight. You're allowed to punch people in a, in a fist fight. That's why everyone loves our sport. We're used to it. We've done it. Every, every single one of those guys that play in the NHL can handle themselves in that kind of department. That's why I thought it was unfair. I don't believe Nate Robinson's ever been in a fight and. I feel bad for the guy that people are making fun of him. He still had the nuggets to go in the ring and fight. Anyone who fights, uh, I give them courage and the nuggets, whether it's successful or not. But uh, this is one, one fight I'd like to see would be Kane and, and Paul for sure. That guy riled up, boy. You don't like YouTube. Oh, no, I don't. I don't like social media either. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I think it was a little offside for the parents that dressed their kids up and doing the Nate Robinson challenge and having their kids pretend to lie there knocked out. That's just, I know, that's just me. Did been, they do that? You're kidding me. Oh. Uh, go, go. I want to see you and Jacques well, actually, Martin hey, in the ring hey, or Mike actually, Milbury. Yeah, I, I, I'd go both those guys. But anyways, on a, on a funny note, I did see some medical marijuana company have the – Night, night, Nate, Nate. Product being sold out already. The poor guy. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Talk to you next week. All yeah. right. Take care, guys. There he is, Todd Bertuzzi. Um, not a Jake Paul fan, apparently. No, jeez. Um, <laughs> Twenty-six minutes after seven o'clock, uh, six fifty-six fifty. The Dunbar Lumber text line. If you uh, agree with Bert's assessment, best for box office, dynamic duo. Burton Nazi. Uh 65650 more on the NHL's return to play and a big win for the Seahawks last night. All that ahead here on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Do you have a punch me face or you don't? Now more of the starting lineup with James Sabolski and Perry Solkowski on Sportsnet 650. 732 Seahawks suddenly finding their winning ways again. Uh, taking care of business, as they should have last night, pair against the Philadelphia Eagles. But the Eagles lingered. 
and kind of screwed a lot of people out of money like you last night. Oh, my goodness gracious. Like, it's one thing to watch the football game and see the domination of Seattle. They should have put more points up on the board. But you're right when you say lingering. Like, that's crazy that that football game was 14-6 and a half, and then you look at what the stats were for the Eagles on offense did absolutely nothing. Seattle did whatever they wanted to and don't have a lot to show for it. And then, you know, we got our Vegas insiders and Todd Furman from Las Vegas every Thursday morning. He had said before the game he liked the six and a half, as did you, and take the Eagles. Um, immediately after that game, and in, in some of the things that I was reading, that was the most bet game. Always Monday night is, but 96% of the people were given the points and saying Seattle's going to beat them. There's Furman going one of the greatest backdoor covers ever. And there's our friend Steve Rapp that just said, what the F was that? Man, it's such a game changer when that happens. So, yeah, listen, I liked how Seattle played the game. And then to see that meaningless touchdown, then you're going, oh, my God, just kick a point out. Just go for the point after. No, don't, don't go for two. They go for two. Screws a lot of people out of the money. Eagles fan upset that they lost. Happy the team covers. Seattle fans going, nah, good on you. But those from Seattle who thought, hey, maybe I can make a dollar on my team. Not yet. But James, I'll say this. I don't know. You look at the NFC and I go like, all right, Seattle's got an easy schedule. They're getting better on defense. Are we going to see this football team go on a run come postseason? Well, do you feel, do you feel as good about the Hawks now as you did say – a month ago. I feel better about them. Here's the thing. I don't like New Orleans as much with no Drew Brees. I'm surprised where Tampa Bay is. So the only team I look at as being in their way right now is what Aaron Rodgers is doing in Green Bay. Seahawks I mean, are Rod trending the right yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Rodgers has been very good. You know, their, de their defense had been kind of flat. They kind of bounced back. Um, I mean, they gave up some points against Chicago late, but that was more kind of mop-up time, I think. Uh, by that point, the game was so well in hand. Um, but the Vikings showed a little more defensively against Chicago. I mean, it's a fairly inept offense. Um, and I guess in fairness, like, you look at the Seahawks, D, you know, six sacks against the Eagles yesterday, but... You know, if you look at the if you look at the trend here in the last three weeks for Seattle, like their defense is starting to play well. You know, mm -hmm. offense offense was okay, but um, I don't think offense will be too much of a concern with Russ. I'd say this: I, I I'm still not entirely sold on the Saints um, completely. Breeze will get back to full health here, I would think, at some point, and you've got time. Obviously, they've got a nine and two record. I don't trust the Rams. Um, I would say probably right now. I, you know, I, I've said this a million times in the past, but the devil, you know, for me is the Green Bay Packers and Aaron Rodgers. So I would probably lead towards Lambeau. But, you know, if Lamb, you know, going into Green Bay, if you had to right now, is not the same, right? Like that mystique has kind of disappeared, and especially going into an empty venue. Same as the old Century Link or Lumen Field now or whatever it is, Rainbow Loom Field. Um, yeah, but I think like the Seahawks could easily go thirteen and three this year, pair. Like look at their like their schedule's soft, man. Like it is cupcake soft here down the stretch. Um, you know, you got the Giants and the Jets at home the next two weeks, you got Washington, and then you close out against two divisional rivals with the Rams and the Niners. Uh, it's not inconceivable they could go five and zero, oh, 
Maybe not, but anything less than an 11-5 and year for the Seattle Seahawks this year is going to be a disappointment from here on in. So that's that's where I see things kind of playing out right now with Seattle. I, I think when you look in the grand scheme of things, I would probably say Seattle number three right now in the NFC. I would take I would take Green Bay one. I would take New Orleans two, and then I would take Seattle three right now. But the encouraging thing for the Seahawks is the fact that you've now got your defense starting to click. In a time that they were the first two months of the season, they were putting up historical numbers defensively in the wrong direction, right? Like this team was on the cusp of being the worst defense in the history of the National Football League through the first seven weeks of the season. And now all of a sudden they've tightened up where they haven't given up more than 23 points in a game in the last three straight weeks. Yes, they lost the game to the Rams, but they bounced back against the Cardinals. And that was a big win two weeks ago. And then they also limit this, the Eagles to 17 points. And yes, I get the Eagles are the Eagles, but it's still a win and it's still encouraging. And six sacks last night on Carson Wentz is a sign that this team's starting to get some momentum on the defensive side of the football. You know Russ can cook. You know DK is going to get his catches like he did last night. Which brings me to another point. Jim Schwartz, what the hell were you thinking last night? How about this? DK Metcalf's numbers, 10 catches, 177 yards. And and afterwards, did you hear this, what he had to say to the media last night? Listen to this from DK Metcalf and how he called out, essentially, Jim Schwartz for talking smack, and it completely blew up for the Eagles, D.C. I'm happy. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a little respect, um, but, you know, I still got work to do. Um, one of the defensive coaches came up to me, and it kind of made me mad that he was like, um, you know, I was I was in Detroit with uh, Megatron, but you're not there yet. Um, you know, in my mind, I'm not trying to be Megatron. I'm trying to be me. So, um, you know, I had, had a little uh, chip on my shoulder the whole game. And and so, you know, it's the follow-up question. Um, you know, you're not Megatron yet. And then was that uh, was that uh, Jim Schwartz who called you? Yes, yes, that was. Um, anyway, why would you why would you talk smack like that to DK Metcalf and a guy who has absolutely gobbled up secondaries all year long? Way to go, Jim. Way to go. And by the way, in the NFC East, you know, you look at how all these teams are just trying to keep their heads above water. You know, Eagles are 3-7-1 and one now on the year. You know, you've got the Giants and Washington both top in the NFC East right now, both tied at four and seven marks. I still think Philly's going to find a way to get out of that. You know, Philly's still going to find a way, I think, to come away with a playoff spot. That's, I mean, that's insane that you're going to have one of those teams in the postseason with a division that is just as, you know, soft serve ice cream like we've seen this year. Every once in a while it happens. But, man, that, that is that is crazy that somebody's going to benefit. And when you And the crazy thing is, is when you get into these one-game winner-take-all showdowns in the postseason, like anything can happen, right? Like, these teams aren't obviously built for success, any of these teams in the NFC East, but, man, just, you know, a freak play here, injury there, you know? All of a sudden, boom, some, you know, a double doink, goes, a kick goes awry. Next thing you know, what happens? 
Now you got a team that's moving on with a sub-500 record. Like in 2020, the year that has given us one poop emoji after another, would you be shocked if a team from the NFC East suddenly pulled off some crazy upset in the early going of the playoffs and went on a run? Like this would be the year, right? This would obviously be the year for it to happen. All right, 7.40 here on this uh, Tuesday morning. James and Perry hanging out with you. Uh, your Canucks commute coming your way at the top of the hour. Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, will drop on by. Uh, the latest uh, happening around the sports landscape, NBA training camps opening up later today. What about the NHL? When is it their turn? We'll get into that and much, much more. All still ahead here on your home of Vancouver Hockey, Sportsnet 650. Welcome to the starting lineup with James Sabolski and Perry Solkowski on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 746 on this Tuesday morning, Sabolski, Solkowski. You back? The gremlins are gone. Uh, yeah, they're, you know, they're shutting power off in different parts of, of the mountain up here in the Tri-Cities. I don't think that was my issue. But, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, all internet, any Wi-Fi disappeared for about three or four minutes. So, you know, you go and you fix things like you do in 2020. Go, how does this work? All right, good, back, we're there. And so I let you continue on with your NFC rant. By the way, um, uh, and I was trying to look now, the Pittsburgh Steelers just sending out some of the Pro Bowl selections. How does Chase Claypool not go, okay, we got to look at this guy for Pro Bowl. And how are the Pittsburgh Steelers on a mission because they'll be pissed at, at, at the NFL that they're getting screwed, having to wait again. Okay, we're not going to play this day. We're not, Okay, we'll play you guys Wednesday. And then you guys are going to be playing early next week. Um, they are the one team and I will give Mike Tomlin credit because that might be the most disciplined team in the NFL with everything that's going on with COVID all facilities shut down for two days, by the way, in the NFL, as they're trying to clean things up, man, the Pittsburgh Steelers are a team that has won my respect. I've always liked Tomlin, but boy, there's a group that seems to be so focused and it's almost like, okay, what else are you going to throw at me? What else are you going to throw at us? No one's beaten us yet. You're trying to change it. And they're handling everything that's been thrown in their way, and I would expect them to do that again tomorrow night. Well, you know, and think back about two years ago or so, there was almost a hint that maybe it's time to finally turn the page on Mike Tomlin, right? Mm-hmm. Stability, though. Stability, consistently, consistency, like the Steelers, man. Like, you look in the last 30 years, you've had two coaches, right? Yeah. yeah. Cower, Tomlin. <laughs> you know, well, it just... it, and it's you've worked. also, James, you went off earlier on your Bears, right? And how you just haven't had a quarterback. Look again. I mean, the Steelers are actually pretty good with Mason Rudolph, who, by the way, is dating Jeannie Bouchard. If you weren't unaware of that, um, but with no with no Big Ben, you knew he was coming back, and it does prove they've got stability. But they've always had that decent guy under center for a long time. You know, when they had to go with Charlie Batch and Cordell Stewart, who was wearing your Bears uniform for a while, it was a little uglier. But for the most part, key guy on the sidelines and a key guy taking the ball from the center. And thus, they can have as much success as that team has had and that franchise has had over the last three decades. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Like Cordell Stewart had a had a brief run with the Steelers with some success, but but Cordell wasn't sustainable. Like. I mean, they got no. to the Super Bowl one year with Neil O'Donnell. 
right? I mean, yeah, you're right. It tells you how, how good they've been, like uh, the rest of the surrounding elements of that franchise. Like they went a long time without a quarterback, and then they've had that stability for the last 15 years with Big Ben. And it's funny, like you could debate like how great Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, the thing is, is Ben wins, right? He he, he wins. But is he does does his name ever come to mind? Like in terms of, you know, man, one of the best quarterbacks ever. No, absolutely not. Right? But yeah. Oh, he, but he wins. He managed a game, does it the right way. By the way, shout out to the Houston Texans. Not only do they win on Thanksgiving and effectively cost Matt Patricia's job, but when COVID's getting all the headlines, their two receivers, Will Fuller and and Bradley Roby, say, hey, hey, don't forget about performance-enhancing drugs. They're still around. And they both get uh, caught for violating the NFL's policy and have been suspended for six games. Uh, just when you forgot about that stuff. Will Fuller, like, Will Fuller is just an, oh, like, he's the A-train from the boys, right? The guy can fly. Yet, what are they doing? Make the stupid mistakes. And, you know, Will saying he sought treatment for a medical professional, prescribed the medication that he thought. The same story, James, like we never heard this before. Hey, man, I went to a, I went to a doctor. He said, I'm good. He said, it's the policy. There's nothing wrong with the NFL policy. You're going to be okay. And then he's blaming it on the doctor, right? I trust the professional. It was not a permitted circum, uh, permitted substance. Uh, I'm done for six games. Not that they're missing much in Houston, but boy, man, I just don't understand those mistakes. And they poke their head up every couple of months. Well, if there's ever a time to get popped for PEDs, I feel like with everything that's going on COVID-related, sure. it might fly under the radar a little bit because you look at what's happening right now. Um, the Steelers and the Ravens that you were just raving about with the uh, w- with the Steelers, that game's now been pushed to Wednesday. You know, there were concerns at one point yesterday that the Ravens didn't want to play this at all because of the concerns and the health concerns, and understandably so. You've, now you've got the 49ers who are forced to play, you know, uh, two games this month in Arizona. So now you're the Arizona 49ers because of new local restrictions in the Bay Area will prevent the Niners from playing games in California. So they're heading to Arizona. That's And I'll tell you what, that's a solid from a divisional rival, giving them a stadium to go and play at uh, for a couple of games. You've got the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League announcing that Effective today, they're shutting down until January, at least until January 3rd at the earliest. They've essentially stopped to play for a month because of the COVID concerns that are happening in Quebec that have been going on nonstop. There's 7,000 people dead in the province mm-hmm. of Quebec, where, you know, obviously it's some, some shocking numbers that we saw here in our province over the weekend with 46 people passing away due to COVID-19, but we're only at around 400 people, and that's still incredibly tragic. But Quebec's almost 7,000 people now. But you've got the Quebec Major Junior. Now today, you got the NBA opening up training camps, and here we are still wondering, Pear, what about the National Hockey League? Like, when does that get going here? Well, and you, you've got to imagine that this is, and, and the one thing that the NHL did, not that they're slow playing this. I think if they would have had some good negotiations two weeks ago, they might have been saying, hey, we're going January 1st. But there's probably a part of everybody, players and owners, going, you know what, I, I can't believe how we haven't got control of this thing in the last two weeks. We've gone as low on setting new records everywhere that they're going, okay, well, let's not rush it, guys. It's, it, it may not be as safe as we would like. 
Let's get through the holidays. And that's why now I was always a January 15th guy. Hey, if you're going to play and you can fit in a 42-game schedule or whatever the number is and start it by February 1st, why from a player standpoint would you go, you know what? I'm seeing it all over the place. Yeah, let's let's make the move now. So that slow play is not a bad idea. I'm sure there's some guys in the NBA going, is this the right time for us to get back to work? Today's the day when the numbers are spiraling. Couldn't we wait a little bit? But they forced it. They've got that Christmas day. That's when they want to get it going. That's when everybody watches them. And I understand that the NHL doesn't have anything like that. I will be curious to see what the numbers as they are right throughout our country. We had Michael Dick on yesterday. He seemed to be, James, very positive that the World Junior Tournament goes on. I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't think this tournament's going to get off the ground right now with the cases there are in Alberta, no matter what you're doing. They just don't have the money to say, hell yeah, no, we'll, we'll be perfectly safe. Uh, I just don't know. And let's be honest, that's a made-for-TV tournament. So let's put the kids' safety first, and if it's not good, don't force the issue and have these guys play. Well, and, and we continue to wait, and it's funny because the slow play in the National Hockey League in the summer worked perfectly. And here we are now that maybe the slow play on the part of the NHL and the players squabbling over money might actually turn out to be the best thing going for the National Hockey League as they try to figure out when their return to play ultimately goes down. 7.54, your Canucks commute coming up in just a few moments. A reminder, this hour is a presentation of Dunbar Lumber. The smart alternative visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner, Arbuta Street in Vancouver, or check them out online at DunbarLumber.com. Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the Canucks, in action next with us here on the starting lineup on Sportsnet 650. Spicing up your morning drive with the Canuck Commute. Riddick kicked it out to the corner. Matthew Kachuk has it there. He's hit by Bertan and turned it over. It bounces right in front of Garnett. Who shoots and scores? A friendly bounce for the Canucks lands right on the stick of Adam Gaudet, who scores his ninth of the year. This is the starting lineup with James Sabalski and Perry Solkowski. And the voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor will drop on by in just a couple quick minutes. James Sabalski, Perry Zolkowski here on this Tuesday, December the 1st. Hour number three on this Tuesday morning here on the 1st of December. 24 days to Christmas now, Pear. You ready? Uh, I'm getting there, buddy. Like, honestly, I was, uh, I was humming a few Christmas carols yesterday after I finished up with the lights. Uh, everything looks good at night. You know, six o'clock comes up. Like, it's not perfect, right? I've got the timers going. So I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not Clark Griswold where everything all of a sudden goes on. Like my timing's a little off. Like, all right, there's it goes the back lights. All right. Where are the side lights? Come on, side lights. Where are you? Right. And then, then the driveway lights, they don't hit up early, but it's close enough. It's within like a 20 minute span, which is good enough for me. Just tell them, don't, don't look outside till 630. Then they're all beyond. And then, and then there you go. Uh, we've been asking yeah. you this morning our uh, our poll question here on uh, Sportsnet 650 on Twitter, uh, which I believe there's kind of some funky gremlins going on on social media this morning. But nevertheless, we're asking you, your favorite dynamic duo in Canucks history, and who's the best? Bert Nazi, consideration? Uh, Daniel and Henrik? Burry McGilney? Or is it the new kids on the block, Petey and Hughes? Asking you that this morning. And uh, Daniel and Henrik, kind of the leaders in this one, but the, it, Bertuzzi weighed in with a thought on, um, on, on kind of echoed on something that you'd kind of chimed in about earlier this morning in the 6 o'clock hour, Pair, and the cultural impact that these guys had. 
Yeah, it, and it it just uh, you know good on Bert because you know I, I, you don't find too many NHLers that like want to blow their own horn, right? But what Bert said made an awful lot of sense, and he's got the numbers to back it up because he simply said, "Hey, if, if you want to talk about the most exciting players to play the game, the the ones that you could market." kind of said it was me and Marcus and he's right because 15% have, have the votes going into Bertuzzi and Naslin. But if you were to take a combination with the most points ever in a season, it was Bertuzzi and Naslin. Remember Marcus was voted. What is more prestigious in my mind and by most people than the Hart trophy. He was given the Ted Lindsay. The people looked in the NHL and said, Hey, you know what? You know who the best player is in our league? It's Marcus Naslin. He got that. They had over 200 points in one season combined. Daniel and Henrik never did that. And to talk about box office value, James, the biggest ticket jump for season tickets in the Vancouver Canucks history was obviously when what? They moved. You left the Pacific Coliseum and you walked into this brand new GM place, the garage, all the bells, all the whistles. You got to go there. And obviously they saw a big jump in their season ticket. But from actual product on the ice, the next biggest jump, was back when Bertuzzi and Naslin were in fine form. They had a season ticket jump of almost 3,000 people. Now, Berkey on Thursday morning will say, oh, it's him, all the breakfasts they talked to. And, yeah, he was out pushing the product, but the product was good. So that would line into the fact where Bertuzzi says, hey, for box office, the excitement we brought into that building, it would be Bertuzzi and Naslin. And he's right. The numbers, the numbers put it up. They were an exciting brand of hockey and maybe more exciting than even the Sedins at their best. Now, Sedins, their numbers have gone down. They're the dynamic duo, and what they did was incredible for longevity. But don't discount Bertuzzi and Nazis. Oh, you guys have them on the show. You love them. No, man, they were as good as you could find in the NHL in their prime. 650-650 is our uh, Dunbar Lumber text line. Love to hear from you. uh, Where's your heart lie when it comes to the dynamic duo in terms of Canucks history uh, and where your loyalties lie? We'll get Brandon Batchelor to weigh in on this. Look, I I think statistically it's easy to – to say Daniel and Henrik, the fact that they they also played their entire careers here, uh, pair, uh, and they and they had the sustainable, and, and this is one of the things that, you know, Bird I think ultimately took a knee on with the success that Daniel and Henrik had, not only from a statistical standpoint, but also delivering results. You know, seven playoff rounds they ultimately won as members of the Canucks over the course of their career. Obviously, the one year they went to the Stanley Cup final, got to a Game 7 against Boston, unable to close the deal, but what they were able to do as a package item and for the course of their career, over 600 goals, you know, 2,100-plus points, the numbers are there, and they got the results by winning seven playoff rounds in that time. Uh, as members of the Vancouver Canucks. That's where I think you have to look from a statistical standpoint. But I think when you talk about the cultural importance, I think that is fair. I think it's very fair with what the West Coast Express did because there is, as you alluded to, a generation of fans that will look at the Canucks and say, those are my guys, Burton Nazi, and what they did and what they meant to the franchise. They made it cool to cheer for the Canucks again. And you hadn't mm-hmm. really had a, a an opportunity to cheer for the Canucks and think it was cool um, from that probably since a little bit after that '94 Stanley Cup run. Like there were some lean years, five years without a playoff appearance, and then the Canucks became a playoff team again. 
and it really kind of the West Coast Express kicked off almost a you know a 15 year run for this franchise of where they became a model franchise in this league right I mean it was year after year they were in the playoffs there was you know a one-off here and there but you know right through until what 2013 or so or yeah, like, and you know the one thing that that yeah. you know people and you can always text us on the number line text line that that are going to hate, and the players will tell you as much. And I was around them all the time. It started with Mark Messier. Like you're going to go, oh my God, Messier was the worst signing. Yeah, from uh from what you saw on the ice for sure. But if we are going to anoint the Marcus Naslin captain Todd Bertuzzi as hey, here's the here's the start of it. This is the type of hockey we're going to play. And then passing the torch to the Sedins, which all the players will talk about because there was that crossover to now on to Bo, as we hope to go into maybe the most spectacular times in the 50 plus years of this franchise. And 94, you're a goalpost away from winning a Stanley Cup. So the excitement around the 95 team, when you add some pieces, oh my God, we're there. We were, we were a period away, we're a goalpost away from winning the Stanley Cup, we're going back. And they went the other way, right? And then Keenan comes in and it started just to fall apart. But in that room, Messier does his thing. Marcus listens and absorbs the good, maybe not the bad, and the effort that's needed. And then it's Marcus and Bertuzzi and Morrison and Olin and Jovo. And they say, this is what the Vancouver Canucks can be. And they they fail. They would look at 2003 and go, that was a failure. They were a hockey team that should have achieved more. But what it did do is said, this is where you belong. You should be a quality team in the NHL for a long time. And it set the Sedins off to carry it to the heights that they were able to until 2016. And you go through that that same episode, right, for three or four years again, where you're just not as good. And, and now they're moving the right way. So it's just a massive building process. But when it comes to dynamic duos, Bertuzzi and Naslin, for one year when they had their run, were as good as any to put on a Canucks uniform. Brendan Bachelor, the voice of the Vancouver Canucks. Welcome back to the morning, sir. Yes, thank you for having me. Good to be with you. We're uh, discussing uh, dynamic duos in Canucks history. Who stands out for you? I feel like, uh, is there a recency bias? Do you go back to the past? Uh, how do you view things? Well, I think it starts and ends with Daniel and Henrik Sedin, obviously. Although, you know, all of the duos that you guys have been batting around uh, are worthy of being in the conversation. But, you know, to me, other than Daniel and Henrik Sedin, you can look at, you know, pretty well any other duo you want to mention in Canuck history and talk about how they underachieved. So, you know, Marcus Naslin and Todd Bertuzzi, you know, great players, top top scorers in the league. But, you know, as you guys were just talking about, those teams didn't reach the heights they should have for how good they were in the playoffs. Um you know, certainly Pavel Bure and Alex McGillney on paper should have been a duo that brought the Canucks a lot of success, but they were uh, on the team in some of the leanest years that, you know, we, we've seen for this organization in the late 90s there. Um, and, you know, certainly the, the jury is out on what Pedersen and Hughes could do. I think there's a tremendous amount of potential there. And, you know, if we're having this conversation in a decade from now, maybe uh, it's, it's Hughes and Pedersen that, that are you know, further up that list and maybe battling with Daniel and Henrik. But to me, you look at, you know, the consistent excellence that they had, uh, the chemistry that they had together, and the fact that the team was so successful and, you know, won all those playoff rounds and was one win away from the Stanley Cup. 
with those two guys leading the way, it's got to be Daniel and Henrik Sedin for me. You know, Batch, but I, I would you agree though? Um, Daniel and Henrik um, were in a prime position to witness what it takes. I mean, if the Sedins were were better in two thousand and three, and and they were good, but they they weren't on their way to being dominant. They were still kids. You know, they learned from from Berta, from Bertuzzi and Naz and Morris. Okay, so this is what it takes, uh, and they needed some help to get there again. But it, it is the foundation that may have been built by by those two guys in that West Coast Express. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm not here to take anything away from any of these duos. As I said, they're all excellent, and they were all great players in the league. And and you know, Naslin and Bertuzzi certainly uh, you know deserve to be on that list. You know, I'll be willing to listen to anyone that wants to argue that you know they're the greatest duo in Canuck history. But again, for me, if I'm looking looking at what I think makes a great duo. It's not just great individual statistical success. It's helping bring your team success. And, you know, great players those guys were. I have no doubt that they helped set the foundation for what Daniel and Henrik would carry forward for the Canucks in the years to come. But, you know, there's no way that you can look back on, on the West Coast Express era without saying, you know, that that team should have won more that that team had an opportunity to go deep into the playoffs and for them to, you know, make it no further than the second round is a, is an underachievement in my mind. Brandon Batchelor with us here on uh, Sportsnet 650. And, you know, you, you look at, uh, it, it's funny to think that one of the duos that we mentioned on this list is Pavel Burry and Alexander McGillney. And, you know, statistically, when you look at what they did individually, you go, wow, man, like those guys, you know, like a lot of people would say Alexander McGillney is a Hall of Famer, you know, Stanley Cup statistics. He was over a point a game player for his career. But yet, for whatever reason, man, it just didn't gel here in Vancouver. Like they, the team never went to the playoffs with those two guys on the same team here. Yeah, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, certainly the the present day Oilers, um you know, have, have made the playoffs a couple of times, but it's kind of reminiscent of what you've seen with McDavid and Dreisaitl putting up all these points and being in the conversation for the Hart Trophy, uh, and yet their team can't can't find a way to, to get the job done yeah. in the postseason, right? Like, that's kind of what I think, is that you look back at those Canuck teams and they had elite talent at the top of the roster and then not a whole lot of support. And so even though guys like Burray and McGillney uh, we're having tremendous offensive years during that stretch. And, you know, in many ways, you know, made the Canucks, you know, relevant in the sense that even though they weren't winning games and succeeding, you still got to go and see two of the greatest offensive players in the league do their thing at, at GM Place at the time, now Rogers Arena. But yet the team couldn't get there. And, you know, you look at McDavid and Dreisaitl and what they're doing right now, and yet the Oilers haven't had any team success. It It feels very similar to me. Brendan Batchelor joined us on the starting lineup. Batchelor, I was saying earlier in the show, you know, as we were doing this exercise and we're going back, so we go back to 94 and how close they were. But that that team in 94 was only a game above 500. And I wonder if, you know, and I think it's different because you had a lot of veterans on there. But, you know, you remember it for how close they were. We remember last season for what was done in the bubble and maybe turned a little bit of a blind eye to a team that was really starting to, 
to go the wrong way and hitting injuries in March where you would be doing your broadcasting and you're, you're probably calculating, boy, are these guys going to sneak into the postseason or not? Do you think we're at fault as Canuck fans in the anticipation of this year, basing it more on what happened in six weeks in a bubble crazy atmosphere than we are on what happened in the 60-plus games that were normal circumstances in the NHL? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to tell based on, you know, right now we're all living in a, a COVID world. So, um, you know, it's hard to, to get a feel for me anyway, what the expectations are for this team around the city. Because I think, you know, if this was an organization that had brought back Jacob Markstrom uh, and had maybe brought back Troy Stetcher, then people would be very enthusiastic about where they could go because you you know you'd have your your MVP starting goaltender from last year. Uh, you would have someone that helps solidify your third pair on defense in Stetcher, um, you know, while also improving your top four with Nate Schmidt. And to me, that would bring enthusiasm within the fan base and thinking, you know, hey, we were a win away from the conference finals. You know, this could be a great season. But I think some of the, the changes in the offseason have, have put a bit of a damper on that. And not to say that the Canucks can't or won't be successful, um, you know, with maybe Ole Levy playing on that third pairing and, and Braden Holtby and Thatcher Demko as the goaltenders. But there's a little bit more uncertainty about what to expect with the team going into this year because of that and also because of the loss of Tyler Toffoli up front. Um but, but to me, the answer about what this Canuck team is going to be is going to be somewhere in the middle because you're right. Things were not trending in the right direction in March when the pandemic shut the season down. Jacob Markstrom was out injured. Um, you know, the Canucks were about to play a critical game against Arizona on the road, um, you know, the night that or, or the day that the season was paused. And, you know, that could have very well been a turning point for the rest of their season because they were battling with the Coyotes to, to try and get playoff positioning. Um, but, the, you know, so we'll, we'll never know what could have happened in that final three weeks or so of the regular season and whether the Canucks would have found a way to squeak into the playoffs and then, you know, how they would have responded to uh, a playoff atmosphere that had fans in the stands and, and things like that. That's all hypothetical and we'll never know the answers to those questions, but it shouldn't take away at the same time from what this team accomplished in the bubble because you know whether you think they would have been there or not or whether you think the expanded playoff format helped them or not the fact is this is a young canucks core that now has playoff experience and will benefit from that regardless of the circumstances in which you know they they got that experience so those games were played the canucks you know did go to the second round of the playoffs they were still a win away from the conference final and their young players will benefit greatly from that. Um, but that said, I do think expectations should be, should be, you know, maybe, maybe not dampened, but you know, you, you have to realize that over the course of a long season, things can be very different and injuries can derail uh, what you want to achieve as opposed to catching lightning in a bottle in a, in a short playoff format. Uh, always a pleasure to catch up, sir. Uh, looking forward to hearing you uh, call games, though, sooner rather than later, and hopefully we get the get some clarity on that sooner rather than later. You uh, you take care of yourself there, and we'll we'll bug you again real soon. All right. 
Yep. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Awesome. Thanks, Batch. There he is, Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the uh, Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650, uh, weighing in with his thoughts as uh, on your Canucks commute this morning here on Sportsnet 650. 19 minutes after 8 o'clock, James Sabolski, Perry Solkowski kicking it with you. We go down the hall and check in with our good friend of the show, the always sunny. Look at that. Sunshine out there. Must be time to bring mm-hmm. in Sonia Aslam from News 1130 into the mix. Hi, good morning, Aslam. Good morning, boys. How's it going? We're good. Good, good. It's almost Friday. What? No, it's awesome. <laughs> Man, you hit that on Monday, on Tuesday. I did, because that's how How, how are you on Sundays? You must be miserable on Sundays. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> no, it's fine. And you know what? You're right. It is super sunny outside. It is. It's really, really nice. It's cold, but it's nice. I'm fine with dry and sunny and cold. Wet and cold, not so much. You draw, you draw your limit that- there. With weather. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How hard it. is it to find good news nowadays? Uh, um, nowadays or like 2020? Uh, I think we had one well, good yeah, week yeah, in January. Yeah, you know what? You might be right, hey? Yeah, I think we had one good week in January, maybe maybe one in February, and then everything else went downhill from there. It's super hard, and I feel bad. Like, I hate, I hate being somber, Sonia. I really do. <laughs> but it's like, it's the reality of the situation right now. It's, uh, it's things are very grim. Things are very, very, very grim. Well, it's funny because we we look at the sports landscape right now here, Sonia, and, and we're talking about like, you know, there was a third time that the uh, Ravens and Steelers game kind of got moved and postponed. Yeah. That'll be moved to tomorrow. Um, you know, you, you look at what's happening in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. They've yep. shut down for a month starting today. And, and they think the Western League is still planning to drop the puck on January 8th uh, in the new year. But there's, You know what, that's, James, that's and there's t- just some talk out now. They move, they move that to February. They're meeting today. And that's what the Ontario and that's what the Ontario Hockey League is is planning, right? Yeah. They're yeah. they're looking at a February start as well, and, and where they're at. But man, and that's like, all just, tentative. Like, well, and and that's it. Like, because Sonia, I mean, I mean, this morning it's just, I mean, Ontario's got like it's just yeah. the numbers every day are just kind of going through the roof right now, and especially here in the province. Yeah. So we actually just got a poll from uh, one of the local pollsters in Sites West, and they talked to a bunch of British Columbians in the last last couple of weeks, and the majority of people think. And this, to me, is horrifying. Um, the majority of people think that the worst of the pandemic is still ahead of us. We haven't even hit the bad part. How? Ex- like you well, can't go anywhere. Everyone seems to be wearing a mask. Like we no, have to. No, we're not following the rules. Just because you see people wear no. a mask doesn't mean they haven't exposed someone, or they may not have it, or they may not be asymptomatic. And just because you see someone for five minutes wearing a mask doesn't mean that they're, you know, the epitome of the perfect person that's following all the rules we had 46 deaths over three days this weekend we have more cases per capita than ontario and quebec like i i don't know what else to say and how many more stats to spew out until people maybe get it maybe follow the rules maybe you know and again it's when we say no gatherings we talked to a guy in north vancouver who had a birthday party with six people People who are in his bubble, people, uh, family members who they've all been seeing each other pretty regularly over the last couple of months, and everyone got it. Six really? people. Yeah. I mean, I think, Pear, I think the reality is, is I think people still have plans. You know, I think people are still doing stuff. I mean, some are better than others, but I think there are still a lot of people. I think a lot of people out there quietly doing 
doing their thing. Well, and not even listen, quietly. I had, we, we three parties. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna rip into my niece right now. But so, she had bought tickets, and before we weren't off to travel, um, so she was back in Edmonton probably three weeks ago. And so I'm talking to my mom two days ago, and here's an interesting perspective. My mom's 90, although sharper than I am. And I go, did you see Amanda? She goes, she came by. I go, really? Like, what is she doing? And my mom says, oh, no, that's okay. But I go, mom, it's not her. She shouldn't be. And she's on a plane. My mom said, you know what? Her friend's having a daughter's having the 50th birthday. She goes, here's what I don't understand. So obviously, they're not going to have a party at the house. They can't. But they're actually considering going to the casino or bingo because they're allowed to. She goes, explain that to me, how that's okay. And you can't have people in your house. And I'm just going, yeah, some people think like that. Well, where are we allowed to gather? And in Alberta, they're allowed to go to a casino or play bingo. So they go, well, let's all meet there and we can talk from a distance. And, you know, there's some logic to that. Unfortunately, that's probably where we're flawed in some of this. I, I don't even know if it's just that. I think it's people who just don't care or people who just yep. still think this isn't a thing. You know, we had three huge parties in Vancouver over the weekend. They all got busted. And there were, you know, 16 people, 20 people. Um, and everyone who the cops said that they encountered thought the virus was a hoax. Like, those people still exist. That stuff still exists. That's amazing. It's, it's horrifying. You're putting first responders at risk. You're putting everyone else at risk. All you're doing is holding super spreader events. Like, I, and I get it. I've said it before. I get it. This is hard to not see the people you want to see. But, you know, the numbers are really bad. We used to be at a point in this province where we were, you know, the leading example in the world. People were looking to BC around the world to be like, wow, they did it. They figured it out and they have like no cases and this, this, this. And then now we're an embarrassment because we're one of the worst places in this country. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, Alberta, I would happy holidays. Saying, uh, yeah, hold my beer. But yeah, no, I mean, we're, well, and that's the tricky thing, right? We're, we're six days away where this yeah. kind of the current restriction period is. We're, what does Dr. Bonnie say going into the weekend where it's like, okay, we're going to extend this or not? But um, I can't I'll, imagine this won't be extended until we actually see numbers and case numbers yeah. go down. And when, yeah, well, I, like, I, I guess it's like, I mean, they're trying, they're asking all of us to do, you know, they're giving a lot of us the benefit of the doubt, right? Like they're not going into restaurants and, and checking, you know, or going into malls. Like, honestly, like I, I think if you look around and, you know, you go into restaurants, go into malls, like if anybody's been or going to a store when you go shopping, like, I mean, there's still people that go shopping as groups together, right? Like there's still people going out for dinner and, and it's not just the family, right? It's it's just yeah, but that could be like what's well, a roommate? It's this. The thing is, is that yeah, but not... six people, but six people I... aren't roommates, right? Like this. No, I know, fr- but it's but... not. Fr- yeah. We're not talking Chandler, Monica, Rachel. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not. Hey guys, friends. Ross is missing. No, no, no. But it's it's also like there there's not enough um, manpower to have first responders be wasting their time walking around the mall checking to see if you all live together, which how do you prove that or yeah. how do you well, not lie? Exactly, when exactly. It's just please take the onus on yourself to follow the rules. Don't have mm-hmm. a huge condo party downtown that needs to be busted. Like, please don't do this. And when I talked to the cops yesterday, they said, you know what? If you think your neighbor or someone is having a party or having a gathering and they're not supposed to be, call it in. That goes for anywhere yeah. in this region. Call it yeah. in. Let's, call, let's, rat, let's rat out Money Perry's hurts everybody, niece. man. Money yeah, hurts everybody. <laughs> Guess let's what, Amanda? Let's rat out Perry's niece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, straight up. I don't know what yeah. she's thinking. No offense. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I listen, I, I don't know. Can't we're going to turn the Dunbar again. Lumber text line into a 
uh, like a Crime Stoppers number. We want everybody to <laughs> rat out your friends and your neighbors, everybody. That's that's where we're going here. 24 days to Christmas. We're going to make everybody enemies in the neighborhood with you. Happy holidays. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Yeah, peace. <laughs> Thanks, Aslam. Thanks, guys. All right. There she Whew. is. Need a break for that. Tidings of goodwill and joy. Yes. Uh, 26 minutes after 8 o'clock. Uh, Todd Bertuzzi on the legacy of uh, Bert and Nazi and uh, the latest. Uh, it sounds like the PA and the league might be having some conversations. We'll check in on that and much, much more here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome to the starting lineup with James Sabolski and Perry Solkowski on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 8.32 on this Tuesday morning. A little brisk out there, but the sun is shining. We'll take that as a win. James Perry kicking it with you. And um, it sounds like, uh, according to various reports, Pierre Lebrun from The Athletics suggesting that uh, the players' return to play committee has called another scheduled for this afternoon. So they meet regularly, this 16-player committee. And... Um, one source uh, apparently telling LeBron that he feels a season start is somewhere between January 20th and February 1st. Seems to be making more sense at this point, Pear. Weren't going to play over Christmas, buddy. We had this argument. There was no way they were coming over Christmas because Gary Bettman is the one who wanted January 1st. He was thinking this is what we'll do. And the players are thinking, man, we are not getting anything. We are not giving you what you want. Um, but I, I do think, it, you know, it coincides today with the NBA training camp starting. Everybody's going forward. And I think we've always felt the league can ill afford not to hammer this out. And to be honest, yeah, I, I would love it to be January 1st. That's not really logical. January 15th is kind of what I always thought. But hey, even if they go February 1st, just make sure you're playing, settle it all in. And then uh, let's have what will be a race. Now, I'm still what I'm curious for, though, my friend, is, you know, when is the start date? But what are we seeing? Like, what are we seeing? Yes, we assume we'll get the Canadian division. But, but more importantly, like, where are the playoffs? What will the playoffs look like? I want to see the, you know, the nuts and bolts of what this shortened season is going to look like. Uh, like in terms of the, the length of it? Well, the length and how they will use the playoffs. Because, my goodness, if they use the same playoff format, uh, and there's no play-in. I just think it's a lost opportunity. That's the one thing that I will say was a positive that came out of it was the entertainment factor we had with playing games. And, you know, Gary, Be oh, you know, I don't think we'll take anything. We like the system we have. Screw that system. Change it now, right? Create some more money, play some playoff games, and go there once and never go back. So we have more teams playing hockey when it matters, when the world is normal and you're playing April playoff games. We're not just sitting at 16 teams. Maybe open it up to 20 or so. Um, so I'd be curious to see what the rules will look like, postseason will look like when they move ahead with this season. Is there any doubt that they're not going to have play-in games? Like, do you really believe well, that they won't do it this year? You need them to say it. I, I think it shouldn't be this year. I think it should yeah. be this is how we're going to move forward. Yeah, like, well, they need to from talk, here on right? in. Yeah, well, they need, they need to actually get talking again before. Uh, but, yes, yeah. I, I, I would anticipate based on the lost revenue – they will try to get more playoff games, and I think I'm with you on that one. But the funny thing is, as much as you wax poetic about how great those play-in series were, there was only one of eight of those series that actually went a full five games. Doesn't matter. Every year, you, <laughs> but, had, you but, had all those like, series There were a lot excited. of sweeps. There were more sweeps than there were actual game fives. 
but you got a chance, right? 100%. It was over quick. Yeah. Oh no, hey man, right? I, I like I like I like playoffs. I want more playoffs for sure. But there was only one that went the distance in eight series. It's kind of funny and, how it and, all kind of played out. And sure, and we view it as the one team that you know went through the play-ins, got on a run. I mean, Vancouver was the the prototype. Oh, look how exciting it can be! You got in, and then you start winning. Um, but yeah, it's just just to have that excitement for forty-eight hours in your city to go. Here's our chance. You know, you can't lose. You can't lose the first game. It's going to be too much to get to. I just think you want that excitement, and and that's what they need to do. Going through all this, do everything you can as a league to create as much excitement as possible. So you've got to take your, oh, I like the playoffs as they are. We it, Regular season means something. No, change it. Uh, 8.36 earlier this morning, Todd Bertuzzi joined us, says he always does Tuesday mornings. And uh, Big Bert weighed in on uh, the legacy and the impact that he and Nazi had as a dynamic duo. Who's the greatest dynamic duo in Canucks history? Number 44 says 19 and the big guy. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I think box office hit, it was me and Nazi. I think most exciting, it was me and Nazi. I think the best producing and the best achieving was Daniel and Hendrick by a landslide. But I think for your box office hit, um, your kind of hockey globetrotting rock stars that entertained each and every single night, I would have to put myself and Marcus at the top. I know Elmo and Bure, Pav and uh, McGilney were on the roster together. I don't, I don't think that they had as much together success. Uh, Pavel was without doubt one of the most electrifying, amazing hockey players I've ever seen in my lifetime. I never, I, I was so excited that I got to play on a roster with him, McGilney, and Messi at some point in my. My career, I look back on that and shake my head and say, wow, man, like these guys were literally 90s legends uh, that I got to play with them. And Pavel was just dynamic. But if you're going duels and all that, without doubt, the top uh, successful one is Daniel Hendrick. But box office hit, most exciting. I think hands down, me and Marcus. And obviously, well, Brandon Morrison was a huge contributor in that. You're uh, you're not spewing fake news because if you go back in the attendance of the Vancouver Canucks, um, the biggest jump they ever had in season tickets was obviously when they moved from the Pacific Coliseum to GM Place. But the next biggest jump, which you can only attribute to people buying into the product, was almost 3,000 new season tickets sold when you and Nazi were doing your thing. And there's only been two Vancouver Canucks combined as a duo to collect over 200 points in a year. And that is you and Nazi again when you guys were lighting it up in, I think, 2003. I, I, I suggested this. I mean, we look at the 94 team, which was great, but they were only a game over 500, and they had that magical run to the Stanley Cup. And then they, mm-hmm. they added parts, but they kind of teetered around. To me, I think you and Nazi, and, and you guys would probably give credit to Messier teaching you stuff, you kind of launched this organization into this is where you guys belong. All right, you should be a top franchise, and then Daniel and Hendrick were there for a little bit with you guys, and then they carried it all the way essentially to 2012. Do you think that's fair that you and Nazi catapulted and said this is where the organization belongs, everyone in the NHL should respect us, and then the Sedins carried through? 
Well, uh, I, I think me and Marcus were a huge contributor to that. There was a lot of huge popular uh, players that were involved in that with the Joe Vanowski's, Matisse, and Brendan Morrison's, um, Dan Cloutier. There was a lot of guys that put their name uh, in that place that belong in the same part. As I, I believe that that unit and the excitement of our line contributing to all right in the west we're now we're we're the team you can't mess with we're going to collectively be in the 90 points teetering the 100 points we're going to solidify this organization as a stellar organization that's here for a long time it's not going to be this roller coaster one good year bad year and then the Sedins took it and ran with that with another another group of popular players in Kessler, Burroughs, uh, Lalongo. But I, 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 I do look back on it, and I, I do take a lot of uh, pride in the fact that uh, my arrival along with Naslin's and then those pieces that I told you in the 2000s did contribute to putting Vancouver not only on the map as far as being a top team, but a very well-loved hate team uh, throughout the NHL. Nice to catch up, sir. Um, nice to go down memory. I rate. got one more thing to say. Jacques Martin's mm. heard enough. No, I got one more thing to say. <laughs> I really hope that Jake Paul, that knucklehead that I actually watched the other day, except the Vander Kane's, proposal for a fight in 2021 and Evander Kane if you're listening I think you're from Vancouver I don't know you at all I'd be in your corner in two seconds along with pretty much every other NHL player to do justice to this Jake Paul this clown so what do you uh, got against him man he beat him fair and square I didn't say I had a problem with him I just don't like his face he's got a punch me face and Evander Kane called him out (laughs) rightfully so and he's got the backing of every other NHL player who will be in attendance to watch that fight. So I hope he accepts his Instagram invite for a fight in 2021. And again, Evander, I'll be in your corner in two seconds. That's all i got to say. Would you take part in celebrity boxing? Oh, I would love to fight him too. But what if you were fighting somebody else? Like what if they said, hey, man, we're looking for ex-athletes to box against YouTubers, chefs, or whatever, would you want to take I, I, I don't know. The, well, i got to see the face. You, you have a punch-me face or you don't. So I don't know what the proposal is. you got to see who they put in front of you. There's some people that you just can't. I don't know. Just, I don't care to fight, but this guy has one of those faces that everyone wants to fight. There's a reason why he was a pay-per-view draw, because he has that face that everyone wants to fight. And I just love that Evander Kane, I think Robin Leonard came out, Said that he'd mess him up, so uh, I'm hoping that uh, one of the hockey players gets uh, gets the call. Well, what, Ryan Reeves or Vander Kane, whose corner would you be in then? I'd be in both. You can't. Once a boy, always no. a boy. I can no. be in. Oh, no. well, they're going to fight each other. Well, yeah. can't sit on that, the that fence now. Make, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. We've been fighting our whole lives. We fight for a living. That's our sport. That's why everyone loves our sport. That you're allowed to be combative, you're allowed to fight, you're allowed to punch people in a in a fist fight. That's why everyone loves their sport. We're used to, we've done it. Every every single one of those guys that play in the NHL can handle themselves in that kind of department. 
that's why I thought it was unfair. I don't believe Nate Robinson's ever been in a fight, and I feel bad for the guy that people are making fun of him. He still had the nuggets to go in the ring. <laughs> a face? Can we get that punch to Jake me face? Paul? Yeah, a punch me face. What do you think? I don't know. Like, I, who has a? I don't see anybody go, man. I'd really like to. Like, there's people you don't like. I didn't realize Jake Paul had this punch me face. I don't like what the guy does, and he partied afterwards. And, uh, but you know, Jake Paul, if somehow, hey, Bert has said a few things that have made their way off our morning show and to other places. <laughs> I would love for that to somehow get its way to YouTube star Jake Paul. Who I don't know what he weighed in for the fight. Uh, the big man's probably what two thirty five, two forty. Oh, I How think good Bert. I think Bert on a good day is two forty now. Yeah, well, he's riding his bike in the sauna. Come on, how many people would go crazy? We have to do this as a poll question. Who would you want to see in celebrity boxing of guys who made a living in Vancouver? Right. Everyone would love to see Messier go up against you know if, if Brash or someone didn't like Messier, right? You go up against it. There's a lot of people that you'd like to see getting beat up in a boxing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people would choose uh, would choose Gino. I would think Donald Brashear. No, you, you put them against unlikable ones, right? Like Donald Brashear, Ryan Kessler with a bad breakup. Uh, Gino Ojic, Mark Messier. Like, are you thinking along those lines? Well, John Tortorella, um, Roberto Luongo. I mean, you have to, as a fight promoter, and now I'm moving into the world of fight, but you, you've got to make it work. But I, I think you could take some villains and guys who had issues with people and all of a sudden go, here's a matchup. You want to watch it? I don't yeah. know who, you know, Bird against Milbury, if Milbury was younger, right? He doesn't like him. Those kind of those kind of fight. That's the fight card I'd have curiosity seeing. I think I think you could localize what was done on the global scale with Mike Tyson and the Jake Paul Nate Robinson. There is no animosity between them, but there's some NHL guys. I mean, we talked about it. Reeves, Kane. People would love to see that. Sure. Final thoughts before we turn things over to the Scott Rintoul Show next, right here on Sportsnet 650. This is the starting lineup with James Sabolski and Perry Solkowski on Sportsnet 650. Scott Rintoul Show coming your way at the top of the clock. Former Seahawk Cliff Averill along with Sportsnet's Arash Madani, the guests uh, that are included on uh, Scotty's show beginning at 9 o'clock this morning here on Sportsnet 650. It is the season for giving, Pear, and uh, we here at Sportsnet 650 want to share that message as well, don't we? Yeah, in an effort to help make it easier for every Canadian to give back. Today is Giving Tuesday. The Salvation Army in Canada and Rogers Communication are announcing got a new innovative touchless digital giving option for Canadians to safely donate to the annual Christmas Kettles campaign. It's powered by the Rogers LTEM network. Salvation Armor's signature holiday campaign will now see hundreds of Christmas kettles equipped with touchless giving technology, allowing Canadians to tap to give using a credit card or a smartphone to donate to the kettle. So if you can, as we welcome December 1st, and it has been a, a difficult year for so many people, um, do what you can. I mean, there's a lot of money that's been saved by people because you know, those who have been fortunate, you have to, to cut back on things. If you have been one that's been lucky enough to, 
to be able to go through this, um, pay it forward, if you will, as December rolls in. There's so many charities with so much of a need to make their holidays a little more special. So appreciate that if you can. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, it was around this time a year ago that uh, you and I were broadcasting live right at the corner of Georgia and Granville Street uh, for Food Bank Friday uh, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to try to do it again this year uh, without the uh, on live and location, obviously, because of a different world that we're in right now. But Sportsnet 650, proud to join KISS Radio. News 1130 and Jack 96.9 to support Food Bank Friday. It's a virtual fundraiser coming up on December 11th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And it's real easy to help raise important funds for accessible, healthy and sustainable food for all. All you got to do if you want to help the Greater Vancouver Food Bank today, text a carrot. Text a carrot emoji to 303333. And that will donate $5. If you text a banana emoji, that's 10 bucks, And a red heart emoji will donate 25 bucks. And using its purchasing power, the food bank is able to nearly double the value of each donated dollar. So all you got to do, text a carrot, a banana, or uh, a red heart emoji. And uh, at 30, 33.3 and... Simple as that. You can help the Greater Vancouver mm-hmm. Food Bank. We've talked about this being a very unique, challenging, difficult, all those sorts of buzzwords in 2020. We got a chance to help, and this is the season for giving here as we are now 24 days to Christmas. And let's make sure it's a Merry Christmas because, man, if there was ever a year to want to have a Merry Christmas pair, this feels like the year we really want to make sure we have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, uh, that's exactly it. may not be the big Christmas, but uh, we have technology. We can... Have a Christmas virtually, but you can do this. The emojis to help out, uh, help out with the, uh, the kettle and the donation. So we're trying to make it easy for everybody. But the first thing is we need everybody to give and help out for December. We got to get out of here. The Scott Rintoul Show coming your way at the top of the clock. For Perry, I'm James. We're back at it. Same bad time, same bad channel tomorrow right here on Sportsnet 650. Do you have a punch me face or you don't?